Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's the synopsis of Cathar beliefs, though of course there were a variety of disputations among the Cathars themselves. For example, there were those who believed that the two principles, the God of good and the God of evil, both existed from eternity. But there were others who followed a more orthodox Christian reading where Satan, the fallen angel created by God, was subsequently allowed to create the material world of bodies into which God placed the souls that must escape our cursed meat sacks to be saved. I see how the Cathars attracted followers with their in-the-know, but also fairly easy-to-understand theology. Precisely. Plus, they had some super sassy arguments against the more theologically challenging aspects of orthodox belief. For example, Lambert relates an argument about the Catholic miracle of transubstantiation. Note, in standard Catholic theology, this ceremony literally transforms the bread and wine on the altar to the body and blood of Christ. But as Cathar theologians calculated, just to feed all of the priests who had celebrated the Mass over the previous thousand years that had elapsed since Jesus walked the earth, Christ's body would have had to be the size of a mountain. The mainstream clergy were not amused by this sort of wry rejoinder. No, and they became increasingly focused on the Cathar problem over the later years of the 12th century. Seeing the church tradition as furthering the preaching of Christ's true disciples who openly proclaimed the gospel to the world, Orthodox theologians obsessed on the fact that heretical teachers worked in secret. Well, that's because the mainstream church argued theology through the tried-and-true debate tactic of setting their opponents on fire. In spite of all the danger... It's easy to see the appeal of the Cathars to the residents of Languedoc in the 12th century. While there was still a hierarchy in the Cathar church, the perfects of the order were, indeed, a holy group set apart from standard believers, their authority was predicated on their dismissal of material things and focus on piety and spiritual development. Thus, they were a far cry from the growing perception by lay people that the wealth of the church and the sumptuous lives of its clergy of priests, bishops, cardinals, popes, and the like were not in keeping with the egalitarian ethos that Christ had preached. Thus weakened by eminently reasonable criticisms of this kind, the church was particularly sensitive to any questioning of its authority. So, of course, these heretics had to be stamped out. In the Languedoc, the story of Cathar persecution starts with the failure of various Catholic religious orders to convert heretics to the one true faith, despite proselytizing in the region for years. This period is dramatized in a 1970s BBC documentary where Brian Blessed blows the fucking doors off as an indomitable Cathar theologian. Welcome, Dominic, to Fangzhou. You have good news for us? Well, that is a matter entirely in your hands. You're having repeatedly rejected the gracious hand of God. Are you the hand of God, Dominic? Or the hand of the Pope? Is it in this that salvation is done? I mean, the cross is the handiwork of Satan. For on it, he tried to destroy the spirit of God. The cross, a shameful instrument of torture. And is this not how the Church of Rome operates? By torturing souls, by preaching a God who causes suffering. Would you have us believe that it is the will of the Father of love, of goodness, of the Holy Spirit, to torture and break his own son? Ah. 
Suffering is the craft of the imposter God, the Rex Mundi, the Lord of this world, whom the Apostle Paul says blindeth the hearts of men. The cross is an act of blindness. The crucifiers were blind, Dominic, and you are following them in their blindness. Are you so in favor of others sharing the miseries of life, Dominic? I mean, would you have us drag down an immortal soul and bind him to our labors and privations? The world is no place for the divine soul. The only hope for the soul in man is that he be awakened and released. Now, for the Church of Rome, <laughs> I mean, this would be too much of a kindness. I mean, the soul must be burdened with responsibilities. Paying priests and bishops to order him around, attending mass, giving confession to a priest who drinks more wine, has more women, and swears as much or more than himself. It's quite clear why we regard your mass with horror, Dominic. I mean, would not Christ also be horrified to find his followers claiming to divide his flesh as his enemies did? I mean, you say the host is part of the body of Christ. But even think that Christ is matter, that is disgusting. Any man or woman here can see that if you put all the hosts together, you would have a body as big as Monsignor. Again, you blaspheme the miracle of the church. Christ said, take, eat. This is my body, which I give to you. I am do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. I've preached to you. I have besought you with tears. But as the saying goes in Spain, where a blessing fails, a good thick stick will succeed. Now we shall rouse princes and prelates against you. And they in their turn will assemble whole peoples and nations. And so many will die by the sword. Towers will fall, walls will be reduced to the ground. And you, all of you, will be reduced to servitude. Thus force will prevail, where gentle persuasion has failed to do so. In these public debates, Cathar scored far too many points with the crowd for the comfort of the mainstream church authorities, who Lambert reminds us were not used to being in a position of having to defend their views against opposing doctrine before a neutral or even hostile audience. The outrage and embarrassment felt by the authorities would eventually make their armed solution to the Cathar problem even more vicious than it might otherwise have been. Here was the biggest challenge of the church. The church had become a gigantic bureaucratic machine. It was a hierarchical system. The Pope, the cardinals, archbishops, bishops, prelates, legates, the whole system. Remember, the Pope viewed himself as more important than any king or emperor, for that matter. He was the most important person on earth. He was the vicar of Christ on earth. And so the church had assumed the character of a hierarchical bureaucratic system. Even then, there were dissidents opposing that, arguing that, well, yeah, this wasn't how things started out. Was Jesus Pope? At the Last Supper, was Jesus sitting there with a papal crown on? Could he have worn one? Was that his relationship with his disciples? There was opposition in the lower levels, at least, of the church to what was seen as the church's arrogance and its opulence. You know, this is something else. The church is tremendously wealthy. It's got all of this gold. It's got huge buildings, whereas most people are desperately poor. I mean, this has been an internal debate in the Catholic Church as long as it's existed, so long as I can see. There's no question that Catharism had become hugely popular in the region. Lambert surveys the extent of the heresy found by church investigators. Quote, the Inquisitors recorded large number of houses in places where the religion had struck root, as many as 50 in Mirepoix, for example. Unfortunately, these scribes were not clear on what percentage of heretics were carrots as opposed to celery or 
onions. Oh, Jesuit, really? A mirepoix joke? Yes, and you're welcome. Peg details a debate held in 1165 between Gillam, the mainstream bishop of Albi, and various Cathar authorities. In this public forum, the Orthodox record keepers confirmed that the Albigensian slash Cathars did not accept the law of Moses, or the prophets, nor the Psalms, nor the Old Testament, but only the Gospels, the epistles of Paul, the seven canonical epistles, the Act of the Apostles, and the Apocalypse. But these heretics also refused to clarify all kinds of theological questions about the baptism of children, whether or not they accepted the Eucharist. That is, the literal transformation of the bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus during the Catholic Mass. Nor would they explain their thoughts about marriage. The only things they were clear about was that they would refuse to swear any oath, as they argued Jesus himself had refused to do in the New Testament, and that they were in direct opposition to the current church authorities and their unearned wealth and power. In 1177, Pegg relates how Count Raymond V petitioned the church authorities to help him root out the little foxes of heresy in his domain. Now, given how we're later going to see the Raymond dynasty constantly at odds with the church, this might seem odd. But the politics of the region and period of the Albigensian Crusade are at best confusing and multi-layered. As the most important nobles in the region, the Raymonds were constantly harried by, as Pegg puts it, Little wars brought on by the shifting loyalties and claims to the rightful authority over various small principalities in the region. It appears that by tarring his opponents with the stain of heresy, Raymond V sought to outflank his enemies by putting the authority of the church on his own side. However Raymond V may have been scheming to get the church onto his side, it would be generous to call the House of Raymond, which was the ruling family of Toulouse, the largest city in the Languedoc region, a group with divided loyalties when it came to the church-Cathar conflict. Especially considering Raymond's own son and heir is suspected, though probably not guilty, of ordering the cold-blooded murder of a papal official whose death was approximate cause of the eventual anti-Catholic crusade. Of Raymond VI, Lambert notes, He was complacent towards Cathars, moved perhaps by secret attraction and a curiosity mingled with sympathy. That sympathy was, at least in part, built upon the fact that many of the noble families in the region were firm and dedicated in the Cathar faith by this point. So... In this case, local ties and the need to keep prominent families as allies may have overridden the mores of the centralized church authorities for Raymond VI and VII, ensconced as they were in a very disorganized, tolerant, and unruly region. In the face of this at-best Cathar-curious local authority, and given that many northern nobles nursed long-term grudges with Languedoc rulers and coveted land and resources from the area, the time was ripe for a convenient moral panic that could serve as a pretext for an armed invasion. And that's precisely what eventually happened when the papal representative got got. And while Raymond V had tried to bring the church to his side against other political actors who supposedly countenanced heresy in the region, by the time an actual crusade was assembled to oppose these beliefs, Raymond's son was on the wrong side of it. Pegg relates how, as high-minded as the rationales for crusading might be, Certain earthly concerns may still have played a part, including the desire not to be seen as sympathetic to the Cathars, and to gain honor, and to pillage in the name of Jesus. Honestly, we can't put the mixed motivations better than Peg himself does. As much as they feared the cancer of heresy poisoning their villages and fields, they feared being attacked as pestiferous by neighbors signed with the cross. As much as they wanted to walk like the Lord in their own lands, they wanted to seize the goods of neighbors who had not yielded to the Lord. The crusade against the Provençals heretics guaranteed a summer of exuberant war-making and the opportunity for sacred and martial honor. The first major assault by the crusaders was upon the town of Béziers, 
In advance of the coming army, a bishop urged the townspeople to turn over the heretics before it was too late, or failing that to leave the city at once. Otherwise, he assured them, the crusaders wouldn't bother to separate loyal Catholics from Cathars. The story of the massacre at Beziers, as related by Peg, is truly horrific. After the city was surrounded, the youth who followed the crusading army as servants, thieves, and other peripheral figures were the first to invade and began sacking it. The heavily armed knights followed quickly, stealing and murdering to their heart's content. All men, women, and children who hid inside the city's church were beaten to death. Eventually, the whole town was set alight and quickly became a raging inferno. Bézier fell, and as the city was put to sack, a massacre ensued that horrified all of Christendom. The traditional ideal of the Crusades to defend Christians against violence had suddenly been perverted to inflict violence on Christians themselves. Christopher Tyreman writes that Bézier set the tone for what developed into one of the nastiest of medieval wars, partly because of the high stakes of dispossession and conquest, partly because of the collapse of social order and the erosion of the rule of civil law in a region that became a perpetual war zone. Some have called this assault the first act of genocide committed in Christian Europe, though of course it would sadly not be the last. The Bézier horror also yielded one of the most legendary and metal album title friendly quotes in all of history. A decade after the attack, it was reported, We should note, it was reported approvingly in a book designed to praise the figure in question as particularly wise. Anyway, so the report goes, an abbot, Arnaud Amalric, a spiritual leader of the crusading army, was asked by the crusaders before the assault how they would be able to sort the heretics from the faithful among Bézier's inhabitants. Thinking for a moment, Amalric reportedly replied, Kill them all. Truly, God will know his own. While this story may well be apocryphal, it's still an accurate reflection of the merciless attitude displayed by the Crusaders. We know the church was anti-heretic, but it can still be hard to understand the sheer depravity with which the Albigensian Crusade went about its bloody business. Peg attempts to explain. Far graver than the unbeliever was the case of the heretic, who accepted the same revelation as his orthodox neighbor, but gave it a different interpretation, distorting and corrupting it, leading simpler men away from their salvation. Heresy was a spreading poison, and a community which tolerated it invited God to withdraw his protection. It's super important to understand this concern, which is very similar to that voiced by the quote-unquote orthodox pagan in response to the rise of Christians a thousand years earlier. Just as the pagan understood his and his family's safety to be subject to the protection that the many Roman gods could offer if entire cities were united in their worship, so the medieval Christian believed that giving heresy a toehold could remove the protection of God from his home city or region and so rooting out heresy could be, for a believer, seemingly a matter of life and death. The Crusaders also took Carcassonne, though their method for doing so involved placing hexagonal tiles on a board to claim access to roads, territorial expansion, and points to be scored at the end of play. I'm pretty sure you're referring to the board game Carcassonne, and I'm equally sure you never played it. Be that as it may, real-life Carcassonne also fell to the Crusaders, in this case without direct bloodshed, but with the terrified occupants fleeing the city with only whatever they could carry on their backs, leaving the Crusaders once again to plunder the town for whatever booty they could find. Sumption records the history of violence as the Crusade scored victories. The first Cathar perfect had been burned at Castle in September of 1209. Holocausts of unrepentant heretics had followed every victory. 140 at Minerve, 300 at Laveur, 60 at Le Casse, and countless others caught and burned in groups too small to be noticed by the contemporary historians of the crusade. After the initial crusader victories, Lambert notes that it must have seemed the Cathar heresy would be wiped out quickly. 
But then Simon de Montfort, the crusading army's brilliant leader, died in battle trying to take the region's largest city, Toulouse, in 1218. This led to the failure of that siege, and in subsequent years the Cathar-friendly Raymond dynasty retook most of the territory the crusade had gained in the first place. But then the French crown and the papacy got serious, sent down a big, well-equipped army, and by 1229, Raymond VII was convinced of the need to throw over his loyalties to the crown. From that point, it was every Cathar for him or herself. Lambert gives us the setting of the Cathars' last stand in the 1240s, the hilltop fortress of Montsegur, noting that it was the perfect place from which to launch a thousand conspiracy theories about the Cathars' fall. Its dramatic position has provoked a variety of improbable theories, suggesting that it was a temple of the sun, a tabernacle of the Holy Grail, or the capital of an obscure cult of greater interest to 20th century mystics than to 13th century heretics. But there is no substantial evidence that Montségur was anything other than an exceptionally powerful fortress, which remained, alone among the many powerful fortresses of Languedoc, in Cathar hands throughout the crisis of the crusade. A group of 30 prefects had bought the protection of the Lord of Montségur, a seemingly impenetrable mountain stronghold, and battened down the hatches there with extensive supplies to wait for the help of heaven, or perhaps for Raymond VII to have a change of heart and send help to his former theological allies. The Cathar Montsegur stronghold was surrounded by an occupying army in May of 1243, and they settled in for a long siege. Seeing that the Cathars were actually better supplied than expected, the besieging army made new plans. With a death-defying climb up the sheer cliff wall behind the castle, a group of fearless crusaders gained a foothold from which to assail the fortress in January of 1244, and after that, the only thing to do was negotiate a surrender. Those negotiations led to a rather strange, though unfortunately still quite bloody, denouement to the siege. The military who had defended the castle were allowed to leave without significant penalties, and the lord of the castle was even able to negotiate a 15-day period during which the Cathars were allowed to hold the fortress before the final surrender to church and king. Sumption is hard-pressed to explain why the defeated were so insistent on this period specifically, even being willing to exchange hostages to seal the deal, but he suggests the period might have had some religious purpose that eludes historians. Of course, this two-week period has fueled endless speculation from conspiracy theorists who insist that the priceless treasure of the Cathars was, during this period, secreted away by the perfects of the faith never to be found again. Fucking ridiculous. Not so fast, Dana. Per assumption, Pierre Roger, the commander of Montsegur, did in fact have two deacons from Toulouse spirit away the gold and silver of Montsegur months before the surrender. Even better, the day before the final handover, he hid three or four heretics in his quarters and in the middle of the night sent them scrambling down the side of the mountain to find the treasure, still resting in a nearby cave, and dispose of it. So, right, it could sound like the conspiracists were onto something. But Sumption points out that this is the whole story in terms of what's historically known about this treasure and its eventual whereabouts. The conjecture of the conspiracists go well beyond these assertions, as we'll see later. Quoting Sumption, of the nature of the horde and the success of their venture, nothing more is known beyond the fruitless speculations of romantic imaginations. The rest of the story is far less romantic and far more horrifying. Though they knew it was a death sentence, several ordinary Cathars took the consolamentum and became perfects during the pre-surrender, as did several of the soldiers who guarded the place. Assumption takes it from here. On the 16th of March, those who refused to abjure the errors, they included all of the new perfects, were chained and driven from the castle gate into the hands of the besiegers. They were begged to recant, but none did so. In the plain below the castle, the royal troops had lit a huge pyre of wood surrounded by a stockade. 
On it, more than 200 Cathars died in the space of a few minutes. Some versions of the story have the 200 walking freely, joyfully, into the flames, singing hymns. In spite of the seemingly total victory of the mainstream Christian forces with the fall of Montsegur in 1244, Lambert notes that there was actually a final Cathar revival early in the 14th century in the area of Foix, the main figure of this revival being Pierre Autier, a singularly effective promoter of the faith who suffered the same fate as the Templars Jacques de Molay but a few years earlier in 1310. This, of course, means that the Cathars were still a weakened but going concern by the time the legends of the Templars' fall started percolating, with the last major flowering of Cathar faith finally stamped out by the 1320s. That was a very sad and kind of long story. Yeah, we probably could have cut some of that short, but on the other hand, we also feel like the history juice was worth the lengthy squeeze. But now, of course, we need to ask, why did this long, sad story eventually become part of so many conspiracists' history-spanning theories? First things first, and this doesn't relate to the rest of our story, but the Cathars are apparently central to one recent, spooky, woo-woo tale of reincarnation across the centuries. One of the most intriguing cases of group reincarnation on record could a West Country housewife really have been possessed by the victims of a medieval genocide? It's March 1962 down in Bath, and Dr. Arthur Gurdon, who's an NHS psychiatrist, is working at Balebrook House Hospital. And his last client of the day is a woman called Mrs. Smith. And she tells him that she is racked with nightmares. Nightmares, in fact, which she's had since childhood. And they're very vivid, with extraordinary detail in them. But they're not about 1960s Bath. They're about a completely different period in time and a completely different place. Eventually, he comes to the conclusion that she is, in fact, being haunted by a terrible previous life. Dr. Arthur Gurdon was a psychiatrist at Balebrook Hospital near Bath. He was well-respected in his profession. He'd written lots of books and psychological studies. So what could have led him to believe that Mrs. Smith had had a past life and that she'd been part of an obscure medieval sect called the Cathars? So that's fucking stupid. Indeed, but that's not the main story we want to deal with here. The tale that really animates most conspiracy theorists ties the Cathars massacre by the church to that of the Templars. Professor Spence, do your thing. For those who would point to the horrors of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the destruction of the Templars would be exhibit number one. And then, of course, the genocidal extermination of the allegedly peace-loving, genuine Christian Cathars would be another. One of the things the Cathars did is that their appearance or the challenge or threat that they presented to the church pretty much jumpstarts what would become the Inquisition, a permanent body within the church who essentially functioned as the Roman Catholic Church secret police. How do you deal with heresy? Well, one of the things you have to do if you're going to fight heresy is that you must understand it. They had books. They had holy books. Do you have any Cathar texts? None. All we know is that the Inquisition went out of its way to find every single one of those books and destroy them because they considered them to be dangerous. Now, knowing what we do about the Templars' beliefs... Some odd initiations and other stuff in there, but mostly pretty orthodox. 
as opposed to the Cathars' beliefs, obviously, deliberately, and fiercely heretical from the perspective of the mainstream church. The idea that the two groups would somehow be connected via a centuries-long conspiracy makes no sense. If you'll recall from our Templar discussion, there has emerged some pretty solid evidence that the Templars were put in charge of protecting the Shroud of Turin, which is believed by some to be, but almost definitely isn't, the burial Shroud of Christ. But what we didn't mention to you previously is that the reason the Templars were apparently entrusted with the Shroud was to keep it out of the hands of the Cathars, because those Gnostics, with their purely spiritual no-body-no-death Christ, would surely have destroyed this priceless ancient relic, or medieval forgery, depending on how you look at it, on theological grounds, because the idea of Christ being a physical man who could even be wrapped in a burial shroud went directly against their beliefs. Moreover, while the Templars were not much involved in the Albigensian Crusade, they also did nothing to stop it and are not on record as having been particularly put out by the major crime against humanity that the Church was inflicting down there in the Languedoc. So where's the Cathar-Templar connection supposed to come from? Again, let's ask Dr. Spence. By the time that Jacques de Merlet gets toasted in 1314, the Cathars are no longer a serious problem for the Church, which isn't to say that they're not around. The reason why the Cathars and Templars are associated is that, again, roughly they inhabit the same historical era. The focus of most of their activity were in different places, but the Cathars are movements like the Cathars, the related bogomils, again, stretched largely across southern Europe. They never seem to penetrate very far into the north. They're kind of a Mediterranean phenomenon to some degree. The Templars were active in Europe, but again, the center of their action was in the, the Middle East, in, in the Holy Land. But they do overlap in the same period. They're basically united by who their enemy is, and their enemy is the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, we now know the Pope really wasn't as much an enemy of the Templars, that he wasn't without some degree of sympathy for them, but it didn't do him a lot of good. The viewpoint of a rationalist, anti-clerical Freemason of the 18th century was that in their view, the Church, that is the Roman Church, was basically everything that was wrong with history. Why is it that an 18th century rationalist anti-clerical Freemason would identify with this Gnostic sect from medieval Europe? Well, because they both hate the same thing. Because what, what were the Cathars saying? They were saying that the Catholic Church was a corrupt, illegitimate institution. And look at what Voltaire, look at the invective that Voltaire throws at the church. And Voltaire just loved anybody that hated the church. The church hated them, therefore they must have been doing something right. The thing about the Cathars is that, again, like the Templars, what happens to them? I think the last Cathar bishop, that it was 1430, well into the 14th, even 15th century, people who were viewed as sort of weird religious schismatics in Italy were still called Gazzari, or Cathar. That was always a kind of insulting term. Yeah, the first thing that connected the Templars with the Cathars is probably the fact that both were destroyed in some sense by the church. To the Masons and other freethinkers in the Age of Enlightenment, who adopted both Templars and Cathars as spiritual forebears, those groups were representative of the cruelties and horrors of the Church, which, to these same thinkers, represented everything that was bad about the world they inhabited. There are some fairly reasonable, sort of mainstream authors who draw some probably unsupportable, but not insane connections that attempt to mold the Cathars and the Templars into a tighter sphere of influence on each other. James Wasserman, whose Templars and the Assassins book we've quoted before, points out that the sacred kiss exchanged by Cathar Perfects is similar to the illicit initiation kisses the Templars were accused of in their trial. 
And it's easy to see how the Templar spitting on and rejecting the cross thing was similar to the Cathar rejection of the centrality of Jesus' crucifixion and even of his existence as a physical human. He suggests that the Cathars' presence in France, one of the key power centers of the Templars, could have, when combined with the mystical influence of the assassins and other Islamic groups, led to the existence of a sophisticated Templar spiritual elite who hid their tenets from the rank and file. He suggests that this tradition outlived the order itself, forming the basis for European occult and hermetic lines of thought to this day. But while most historians wouldn't even go along with this suggestion, the real crazy stuff goes much, much further, and it involves a whole other secret society we haven't mentioned yet, and a strange story about an obscure parish church. And most of all, it includes one of the biggest publishing phenomena of this young century. And so, let's explore the world of the goddamn Da Vinci Code. I'll never forget the day I locked eyes with thine The cutest lamb in the thought And the sun began to shine You washed my feet being Driving with your head We're not going to insult the intelligence of anyone over the age of 30 in our audience by suggesting that they somehow missed the international phenomenon that was the mid-2000s obsession with the novel The Da Vinci Code and the insinuations about a true but deliberately hidden history of Christianity and especially the Catholic Church that author Dan Brown's book made. Of course, given our interests, our ears definitely perked 15 years ago when we started hearing wild accusations about a secret Jesus family and a conspiracy that wended throughout all of Western history. But we quickly realized the book was a poorly put together pastiche of nonsense that we had already heard because it was ripped from other more interesting conspiracists, and we moved on to other topics. But of course, as we started delving into our Templar Mason and other researches for this series, Brown's book kept popping up as an important part of the way that the fake stories of these groups were being remixed and reimagined in contemporary popular culture. It became obvious that we were going to have to talk about it. So we watched the movie. No, he didn't read the book. Why? Well, first of all, he didn't read the fucking Warren Commission report for JFK. You think he's going to feel mandated to read this horseshit? Yeah. Also, it appears that this is one of those slavish, super literal translations that Hollywood can be depended upon to produce if a book gets a big and irascible enough fan base. Nobody at the studio wants to be on the receiving end of a bunch of people with poor literary taste who are upset that you changed their favorite shitty scene and their favorite shitty author's shitty book for your shitty movie. Not that he went into this with any preconceptions. No, I knew it was going to be a real poop sandwich of a cinematic experience, but I love working on the show, and California has legal weed, so I figured it would be kind of a hoot. Listener, I can tell you, I was very, very wrong. How is this movie so goddamn bad and boring? The assembled cast is astonishingly talented, and director Ron Howard has been known to put out a well-paced crowd-pleaser. So how did this leaden, clunky exposition fest get made? Did Tom Hanks, Audrey Tattoo, Ian McKellen, Alfred Molina, and Jean Reno all have vacation home payments that came due at the same time? How else did they end up in this garbage? And apparently reviewers weren't any kinder to the prose stylings of the novel, which we have indeed read in excerpts. And not that it has much bearing here, but we couldn't resist quoting a few of the juiciest jabs. The New York Times, while reviewing the movie, called the book Dan Brown's best-selling primer on how not to write an English sentence. Yeah, and in another drubbing we enjoyed, Jeffrey Pullum at Penn State's Language Log referred to Brown's writing as, quote, Not just bad, it is staggeringly, clumsily, thoughtlessly, almost ingeniously bad. In some passages, scarcely a word or phrase seems to have been carefully selected or compared with alternatives. 
I slogged through 454 pages of this syntactic swill, and it never gets much better. Ouch. But I'm not here to bash Brown's catastrophic literary instincts. I'm here to take him to task for one line on the acknowledgments page. Quote, All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Oh, shit, son, you done fucked up now. You just made New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman mad. Yes, the official paranoid strain favoritist ever scholar of ancient history. Technically, it's a tie with Professor Kenneth Harl of Tulane University, whose great courses you would all be wise to experience. Fact. Anyway, Dr. Ehrman took umbrage with this rather broad claim of Brown's, especially when it comes to ancient documents, that Brown would have no idea how to even read in their original languages, unlike Bart Ehrman. And so we're once again going to turn to Dr. Ehrman, among others, to start walking us through the dizzying, refracted pseudo-history at the heart of the Da Vinci Code phenomenon. But it's not just Ehrman's corrections about the stuff Brown gets wrong regarding the historical Jesus, the Gospels, and the construction of the Bible. It turns out there's a lot of layers of horseshit for us to uncover within this, among the most popular and widely believed conspiracy theories to emerge in this century. And so we plan to shovel away all of the dumb fuckery until we eventually get down to the soft, chewy nougat of historical truth at its center. Sorry, did you just evoke a horseshit nougat candy? Let's not worry over much about my repulsive metaphors, Dana. Instead, let's take on the claims made in the cacophonous banality that is the aforementioned Da Vinci Code movie. First, a plot summary. The film's main character is a globetrotting Harvard professor of symbology. A discipline that Brown made up named Robert Langdon. While he's in Paris on a book tour, a curator and professional acquaintance of Langdon's is murdered at the Louvre. Our hero deciphers some sort of message left by the dead guy. Drawn in his own blood. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it turns out the cops think Langdon is the murderer and they put a tracking bug on him until the dead guy's granddaughter, Sophie, who works as a cryptographer with a gendarme, tells him about it and throws it away. The two of them then follow a series of clues that lead them to various priceless artifacts, encoded messages left in da Vinci's paintings, etc., until they realize that the dead grandpa curator was also the head of a secret society called the Priory of Sion. Much, much more about those folks a little later. Eventually, they realize they are being pursued by sinister forces led by a shadowy Catholic order called Opus Dei, whose albino monk assassin is trying to kill anyone associated with the Priory and its secret. Believing that said secret has to do with the Holy Grail, Langdon and Sophie show up at the Paris estate of a friend and Grail scholar named Lee Teabing. There's more plot after they reach Teabing, but it's even dumber. So we're just going to focus on this scene because it's where most of the most controversial historical claims are discussed. Yeah, it's in Teabing's mansion that we get the big information dump that lies at the heart of why people who don't read much or think too hard believe that this hack of a novelist has unleashed real-life secrets that would shake the foundations of the Catholic Church. Which has been doing an admirable job of shaking its own foundations over the past few decades. Thanks very much. And just to make this exploration as entertaining as possible, we're going back to a trick we pulled in our JFK episode. We'll review the claims made in this scene and a few other key moments where Brown's characters declaim about history and use the lightning round sound to give ourselves three minutes each to explain why these claims are nonsense. Gather your popcorn and 3D glasses and let the corrections begin. To understand the Holy Grail, my dear, you must first understand the Holy Bible. The Bible as we know it was finally presided over by one man, the pagan emperor Constantine. I thought Constantine was a Christian. Oh, hardly. No, he was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. 
Constantine was Rome's supreme holy man. From time immemorial, his people had worshipped a balance between nature's male deities and the goddess, or sacred feminine. But a growing religious turmoil was gripping Rome. Three centuries earlier, a young Jew named Jesus had come along, preaching love and a single God, centuries after his crucifixion. Christ's followers had grown exponentially and had started a religious war against the pagans. Or did the pagans commence war against the Christians? So let's deal with these, our first major set of misstatements. First, thanks to Dr. Ehrman, we definitely can say who started the turmoil between the Christians and the pagans in the time before Constantine. It was, in fact, the pagans, who saw the Christians' refusal to worship other gods besides their own as a dangerous practice that could bring down the wrath of the other gods upon society, as we mentioned earlier. But there weren't enough Christians in society to actually foment a full-on civil war. What was happening was a religious majority oppressing a religious minority, a story as old as time. But focusing on Constantine, the first Roman emperor who converted to Christianity. The real story is that he was a pagan, battling a rival for the throne, when he had a dream in which he saw the sign of the cross flying over his army, and a voice that told him, In this sign, you will conquer. He rebranded his army with Christian markings and went on to victory. Constantine, counter to the way the movie characterizes him, was to all appearances a genuine, if somewhat unorthodox, Christian from that point, though he may have muddled his belief in Christ with his former devotion to the cult of Saul Invictus. Translation, the unconquered son. A sort of proto-monotheist cult within Roman society that worshipped the sun as a deity above all others. And to be fair, membership in this cult may have paved the way for Constantine's later further turn to monotheism. Sure, but as the rather excitable and overly defensive pro-Catholic tome The Da Vinci Hoax points out, Brown's argument is that Constantine destroyed the previous pagan balance between male and female divinity with his patriarchal version of Christianity. But if it's the case that he was, quote, waging a campaign of propaganda that demonized the sacred feminine, obliterating the goddess from modern religion forever, but then at the same time was leading the overwhelmingly popular cult of the masculine singular soul Invictus, then where was the divine feminine that was being displaced? Good question. And it's true that he became baptized only on his deathbed, but that was actually pretty common at the time. Many believers wanted their baptism to wash them clean as sins as close to their deaths as possible, so they had less to atone for when they met the big guy. So the whole tone of the movie's accusation here, that Constantine was simply a clever politician who faked conversion to quell a civil war, is way off the mark. And in 325 Anno Domini, he decided to unify Rome under a single religion, Christianity. Christianity was on the rise. He didn't want his empire torn apart. This makes it sound as though in 325, Constantine made it illegal to be a non-Christian in Rome. He did nothing of the sort, but rather passed a series of edicts that stopped the persecution of Christians. None of them forbade the practice of traditional Roman worship of the many gods. And to strengthen this new Christian tradition, Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on, well, uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific Gospels to the date for Easter to the ministering of the sacraments and, of course, 
immortality of Jesus. I don't follow. Masha, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless. A mortal man. Some Christians held that Jesus was mortal. Some Christians believed he was divine. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity came from a vault? Well, remember in those days, gods were everywhere. By infusing Jesus the man with the divine magic, by making him capable of uh, earthly miracles, as well as his own resurrection, Constantine turned him into a god, but within the human world. And he basically knocked the more distant gods out of the game. Constantine did not create Jesus' divinity. He simply sanctioned an already widely held idea. Semantics. No, it's not semantics. You're, you're interpreting facts to support your own conclusions. Facts for many Christians. Jesus was mortal one day and divine the next. For some... So that shit's bananas. Instead, as Dr. Ehrman will explain, the Council of Nicaea was held in order to answer a question about Christ's divinity, not to establish the divinity itself. This may seem to us today to be a rather arcane set of debates. But in Alexandria and in other parts of the Christian world of the early 4th century, they were hotly contested. And the heat of the debates affected the unity of the church, as arguments, fights, and even acts of violence eventually broke out over the issue of whether Jesus was only like God, in that he was created as a secondary divinity, or was of the same substance as God, co-eternal with him. What has all this to do with Constantine? Constantine wanted Christianity to help unify his empire. But how could Christianity bring unity when it was split against itself on what was considered at the time a fundamental theological issue? In some ways, the theological issue, the nature of God himself. Constantine, wanting unity in the church because he wanted unity in his empire, called a council to decide the issue raised most poignantly by Arius, whether Christ was a divine creation of the Father or was himself co-eternal and equal with God. The Council of Nicaea met in 325 CE to decide the issue. Contrary to what Lee Teabing asserts, it was not a particularly close vote. The vast majority of the 200 or 250 bishops present sided with the view of Athanasius against Arius, which was eventually to become the view of Christianity at large, although the debates continued for decades even after the council. And more important, contrary to Teabing, it was not a vote on Jesus' divinity. Christians for 250 years had agreed that Jesus was divine. The only question was how he was divine, and that was what the Council of Nicaea was called to resolve. The Da Vinci hoax notes that while much of the material that Brown's characters parrot here comes from other sources, this particular suggestion, that the Council of Nicaea was the first place where believers decided that Christ was divine, seems to be original to Brown. The bullshit's getting piled up. Next, we hear the real fake truth about the real fake Holy Grail. And the chalice resembles a cup or vessel, or more importantly, the shape of a woman's womb. No, the Grail has never been a cup. It is, quite literally, this ancient symbol of womanhood. And in this case, a woman who carried a secret so powerful that if revealed, it would devastate the very foundations of Christianity. Wait, please. You're saying the Holy Grail is a person? 
A woman? We're not so upset about this one. Sure, the Holy Grail can be a person instead of a cup. Doesn't matter, because the whole thing is an invention from the 12th century and has never been plausibly shown to have existed in the real world. So your imaginary thing can be a different imaginary thing. Knock yourself out. Now, listen to this. It's from the Gospel according to Philip. Philip? Yes, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, along with any other Gospels that made Jesus appear human and not divine. Unsurprisingly, it was not the Council of Nicaea nor Constantine who decided which Gospels would become canonical. Is it true that Constantine was responsible for making the final decision about the four Gospels that came to be included in the New Testament, as Lee Teabing claims? Were there a variety of Gospels still widely accepted in the early 4th century, from which Constantine chose four to be included in the final canon of Scripture? Even this is not a historically accurate view. Not only were certain heretical texts, such as the Gospel of Peter, excluded by the majority of Christians in the second century, but the fourfold Gospel canon of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was itself established long before Constantine as well. Moreover, there's that snide suggestion that the Gospels that made it into the Bible were the only ones out of dozens that made Jesus seem more like a divine being than a man. There are a few problems with this, including the fact, as Ehrman points out, speaking of the treasure trove of Gnostic writing discovered in Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1947, Nor do they speak of Jesus' ministry in very human terms. If anything, Jesus is portrayed as more divine in the Nag Hammadi sources than he is in the Gospels of the New Testament. Finally, Ehrman has a real brain teaser for anyone who finds the Teabing character's rant about the Gospels sensible. Teabing, in fact, presents a rather confused picture to Sophie in his discussion of Jesus' identity as divine. On one hand, he indicates that Jesus' divinity was not accepted until Nicaea in the year 325. On the other hand, he indicates that Constantine accepted into his canon of Scripture only those Gospels that portrayed Jesus as divine, eliminating all the other Gospels that portrayed Jesus as human. But if Jesus' divinity was not acknowledged by Christians until the Council of Nicaea, Teabing's view, how could the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portray him as divine already in the first century? which is also his view. See the problem? Teabing suggests that originally Christians and their Gospels talked about a great man named Jesus who wasn't divine. And then Constantine came along and instead forced in four Gospels that talked about Jesus as divine. But then the four he chose, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are among the very oldest documents that come to us after Christ's death. How does that make sense if no one originally thought of him as divine? Is all of this so convoluted? I am getting a headache. And the companion of the Saviour is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her. But this on the... says nothing of marriage. Well, actually, um, Robert. Actually, in those days, the word companion literally meant spouse. And this is from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene herself. She wrote a Gospel? She may have. Robert, will you fight for her? She may have. And Peter said, did he prefer her to us? And Levi answered, Peter, I see you contending against a woman like an adversary. If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? And then my dear Jesus goes on to tell Mary Magdalene that it's up to her to continue his church. Mary Magdalene, not Peter. The church was supposed to be carried on by a woman. 
Lee Teabing claims that the Aramaic word for companion really means spouse and uses this to show that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. But as we have seen, the text is written not in Aramaic, but in Coptic. And the word for companion, it's a Greek loanword, koinonos, in fact means not spouse, but companion, friend, or associate. When the legend speaks of the chalice that held the blood of Christ, it speaks in fact of the female womb that carried Jesus' royal bloodline. But how could Christ have a bloodline unless... Mary was pregnant at the time of the crucifixion. For her own safety and for that of Christ's unborn child, she fled the Holy Land and came to France. And here it is said she gave birth to a daughter, Sarah. The child's name. You asked what would be worth killing for. Witness the greatest cover-up in human history. This is the secret the Priory of Sion has defended for over 20 centuries. They are the guardians of the royal bloodline. The keepers of the proof of our true past. They are the protectors of the living descendants of Jesus Christ. Now here's where it really gets off the rails. At this point, the book is claiming that Mary Magdalene was not only Jesus' lawfully wedded wife, but was pregnant with his baby girl at the time he was crucified. She then fled to Europe and there established an honest-to-God Jesus bloodline. I'm assuming I don't have to tell you that there's not a shred of evidence for this view, but we'll have more to say on those who came up with the modern version of this wacky, world-spanning Jesus family adventure a bit later. After this scene, there's a whole lot more running around chased by authorities, but eventually we find out Sophie herself is actually the latest generation of this bloodline, and Langdon has to protect her, yada yada, Mary Magdalene is buried under the pyramid at the Louvre. Spoiler alert! No one gives a shit, Dana. Or, God, we hope they don't. Well, let's modify that. The super-Catholics who wrote the Da Vinci hoax seem pretty steamed about all this, saying, What Dan Brown and his sources, influences, and fellow travelers display is a radical refusal to engage the Catholic Church and her cultural artifacts on her own terms. The occultists, feminists, and Gnostics who inspired Brown wish only to redefine and mutilate Catholicism unto its destruction. To which we say, bro, bro, why you mad, bro? I mean to make you sad. You're my bad, bro. Anyway, the Da Vinci Code is nonsense of the purest race serene, but an upsetting number of people greeted the publication of this piece of shit as if Dan Brown had unleashed a treasure trove of unknown information. But as we've seen, Brown didn't do much, if any, original, careful, in-depth research at all. In fact, it turns out the most interesting thing about this book, aside from the sheer wall of credulous books, documentaries, and other crap that believers in its insane ramblings and opportunists seeking a quick buck have produced, is the fact that this mess of poorly researched fiction was actually based on a carefully researched nonfiction book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The authors of that book were so incensed by the way Dan Brown had taken from their research and in many cases twisted or misrepresented it that they actually sued him for copyright infringement. Conrad Bauer, in his awkwardly written but admirably brief and informative history of the Priory of Sion, again, coming up soon, gives us a quick overview of this case held in 2009 in a court in London. Richard Lay, hailing from New Jersey, and Michael Bajon, hailing from New Zealand. They glower at Dan Brown, who strangely enough hails from New Hampshire, 
from the other side of Court 61. Dan Brown is the defendant, and the other two men have accused him of plagiarism. Brown, they say, not only stole their ideas, but presented them to the world in a way which discredited the work they had done. Béjean and Lay are better known to the world as the authors of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail. As well as being one of the most popular pieces of writing ever created on the subject of the Holy Grail, their book brings the idea of the Priory of Sion to an English-speaking audience. As we will discover soon, their work was wildly successful, and few writers have come as close to delivering as groundbreaking, as controversial, and as profitable a take on religion in the last three centuries. And so, both sides of the courtroom are inhabited by writers. On this day, a verdict is to be reached, which will lend credence to, or demolish the credibility of, an idea which is said to date back almost 2,000 years. At the heart of the matter, with a judge set to rule, is the purported existence of the Priory of Sion. But of course, nonfiction ideas can't, by definition, be copyrighted, so the case was thrown out. But now, it makes sense that, having hacked through Brown's bullshit, we should take some time to respectfully review the research of these serious-minded authors, Michael Bajent, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln, and the output of their work, the imposing tome, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. But? But what? But you're about to tell us they're full of shit too, right? Dana, you know me too well. Actually, I've got much more love in my heart for the hapless, credulous, true believer authors of Holy Blood, a book that first appeared in the 80s and whose, again, purportedly non-fictional conclusions launched a furor that played out as a sort of miniature version of the Da Vinci Code madness of the 2000s. In fact, the story of how Holy Blood, Holy Grail came into existence in the first place is incredibly interesting in and of itself, especially as it touches upon the existence of a real-life secret society, the aforementioned Priory of Sion. You've got no thing dates back to 1969, when a British actor and television writer named Henry Lincoln purchased a paperback during a vacation in France. The book was called... Actually, Dana, could you do the honors? Le Tresor Maudit de Rennes le Chateau. Sounds so nice when you say it. The title translates to The Accursed Treasure of Rennes le Chateau, for us English-only Cretans. The book spun a fascinating tale of lost treasure, an accursed church, and its potentially devil-worshipping parish priest, and the suggestion that he had uncovered secrets that had been hidden for nearly a thousand years. Lincoln got super obsessed with the idea of a treasure being hidden in a small rural French parish and convinced the producer of the BBC documentary series Chronicle to fund a short film on the mystery of its vicar, Berenger Saunier. And because we live in an age of fucking miracles, we're about to share clips from that film and the two sequels he talked the BBC into producing as well, once the first show turned out to be a major hit with the viewing public. But to summarize the story that DeSed wrote about and Lincoln filmed, we're going to turn to an excellent book on the subject by Bill Putnam and John Edwin Wood, titled The Treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau. Here's how they relate the best-known version of this story. 
1885, a poor parish priest of no notable heritage or unique skills, Beringer Sonier, was assigned by his church superiors to an obscure and ancient town in the historical Languedoc region. You'll recall that's the Cathar's old stomping grounds. He was soon able to use a donation from a wealthy parishioner to begin a remodeling of the altar and to install some stained glass windows. But a few years later, Sonier suddenly began to spend huge sums of money on an enormous rebuilding project encompassing not only the parish church, but also his own residences, the town's graveyard, and more. No one knows where the money came from, but many suspect he found a fabulous treasure somehow. That there is something weird about the story is bolstered by the fact that the refurbished church is full of strange embellishments that many have taken as clues to the location of said treasure, put there on purpose as part of some strange master plan of Sonier's. One emblematically strange example? An arch over the entrance to the church reads, Terribilis est locus iste. Translation, this place is terrible. Adding to the mystery, of course, is the deep history of Rennes Chateau, which by dint of its position in the foothills of the Pyrenees, had over the centuries been adjacent to major events, including the tragic story of the Cathars. It was once a stronghold of that faith. And the exploits of the Knights Templar. Who built castles in the area, but that's not surprising. They built castles everywhere, because those dudes were fucking flush with cash, at least at one time. Anyway, the story goes that during Sonier's extensive renovations, workmen opened an ancient Visigothic column in the church that turned out to contain parchments. Excitingly, some of these parchments are apparently still around and have been shown to include carefully coded messages. Sonier traveled extensively and for mysterious ends. Reports have him meeting with luminaries of the time. It's said he visited the Louvre and purchased paintings, including one by Nicolas Poussin, the Shepherds of Arcady, that depicts a tomb surrounded by shepherds in a bucolic setting. There's an inscription on the tomb as well, et in Arcadia ego. Translation, even I, death, am in Arcadia. This seems like an unimportant point until you realize that one of the two remaining parchments, when deciphered, includes the message, Poussin holds the key. Also, as Lincoln and Desed discovered, there's a tomb in the countryside around Rennes that resembles the one featured in the Poussin painting. Could this also be a clue to the treasure? Eventually, back in the 19 aughts, Saunier's extensive renovations were complete, but confusingly, he and his longtime housekeeper, Marie Denarnot, whom pretty much everyone agrees was more than a housekeeper, if you know what I'm saying, stayed in a modest residence while the remodeled mansion he'd had built on the church's grounds, called Villa Bethany, was reserved for entertaining fancy guests. Eventually, Saunier's lavish spending came to the attention of his superiors in the Catholic hierarchy. When they demanded to know the source of his funds, he couldn't, or wouldn't, provide the information. He was stripped of his priestly duties by the Vatican, though he continued to celebrate Mass in defiance of these orders until his death in 1917. Reportedly, his final confession to a fellow priest was so shocking that the man refused to give Saunier absolution from his sins as is traditional for dying Catholics. The housekeeper stayed in Villa Bethany until her death in 1953, though she sold the property in 1946 to Noel Corbu, who developed it into a resort, offering the bucolic quiet of the picturesque village and its landscape. While she regularly intimated to Corbu that she was in possession of a secret, and that she would pass it along to him eventually, she died in 1953, never having revealed it. If there was a treasure, no one to this day knows where it is. Well, that is indeed an interesting story. What did Lincoln's documentarian instincts uncover to flesh out the picture? Quite a lot, if your standards of evidence are low. Let's start with this monologue from the first film, provocatively titled The Lost Treasure of Jerusalem, 
where he puzzles over the story of Sonier and drops in some completely unwarranted speculation about the Templars finding some of the same supposed treasure Sonier had located. Over the centuries, there have been persistent legends of the lost gold or a treasure in this area. For instance, during the Middle Ages, the religious military order of the Knights Templars brought in gold miners into the area, or so it was said. They were kept totally segregated from the rest of the population. And yet it seems likely that these gold miners were in fact gold workers, reconverting the golden artifacts back into crude gold, which they could bring out of the gold mines. Hear how he just changed up the Templar story without any actual evidence, making the supposed gold miners into gold workers? And he only does it because he wants the story to change from Templars dug for gold in this area to Templars needed to melt down gold in this area because he's already decided the treasure exists? Hey, you know that wildly misapplied phrase, begging the question? Which people usually use as if it means this leads us to the question of, as when someone says in the middle of a discussion of the Coen brothers over, this begs the question, is Racing Arizona their finest film? Now, of course, the correct answer is an emphatic yes, followed by, and it's also the greatest movie ever made by human beings. But this is not what begs the question is supposed to be used for. It's supposed to point out a logical fallacy in which a person assumes the validity of his conclusion rather than offering facts to support it. As in, we're justified in making this leap to Templars melting down gold based on the fact that they clearly found the treasure we're hypothesizing might exist here, thus fallaciously using one unsupported assumption as evidence for another unsupported assumption without actually proving the validity of either. We'll find this unfortunate and disingenuous approach to determining the facts of a proposed scenario sprinkled throughout his later work in Holy Blood, as well as some truly risible defensiveness when it comes to Lincoln and his co-author's amateurish and indefensible approach to historiography. By the end of film one, Lincoln appeared to believe his most important questions remained unanswered. Two years later, he therefore produced a second film on the topic titled The Priest, The Painter, and The Devil. In this one, he engages in some architectural criticism of Saunier's choices in terms of church redecorating strategies. The statues seem blind and remote. There is a strange emptiness here, a confusing, puzzling, mysterious mass of detail which seems to be trying to say something, though the voice is muffled. The total effect is almost overpowering. There is no delicacy here, rather a flamboyant expression of enormous vitality sliding towards bad taste. In its vulgar charm, it seems to be echoing the character of its creator, Béranger Saunière, the priest, who seems to be taking a delight in playing with us, giving us clues. Is Saunière trying to show us what the parchments showed him? Perhaps if we could read the secret messages, we too could be led to the source of Sonia's wealth. But then he gets down to analyzing the messages encoded in the two parchments found by the priest in the ancient pillar on his altar, which is a little more interesting and a lot more French. And here is the first message found quite simply by identifying those letters which are raised higher than the rest of the text and reading them off in sequence. A Dagobert de Roi et à Sion et ce trésor... This treasure belongs to Dagobert II, king, and to Zion, and he is there dead. So the message makes it quite clear that we are dealing with treasure and a treasure that belongs to Dagobert II, who is presumably the he who is there dead. So who the fuck is this Dagobert? Again, Lincoln's got you, baby. 
Dagobert was one of the last kings of the Merovingian dynasty of France. He was assassinated in the year 679 AD. It is perhaps not impossible that a Dark Ages royal treasury could be hidden away here. But Zion... Zion is Jerusalem. And the treasure of Jerusalem, the treasure of Solomon's temple, was carried off by the Romans, who sacked the city in 70 AD. How can the treasure of Jerusalem possibly be linked with Rennes-le-Chateau? So, Lincoln's interpretation of the secret message in Saunier's parchment suggests a couple of things here. One. This Dagobert, the last of the Merovingian kings. A medieval dynasty of Frankish kings that will become surprisingly important in this strange story very shortly. Anyway, Dagobert's treasure lies, presumably, with his body, wherever that is. Two. This treasure is also, apparently, associated with Zion, another word for Jerusalem, i.e. the place where the Knights Templar's temple was located, where they supposedly first began to build their fabulous wealth, etc. Lincoln leaves open the question of how these two might be associated, though it's safe to say he thinks he has some answers. I.e., it's the same treasure. But in spite of these gold and jewels treasure peregrinations, in this film, Lincoln comes to decide his focus on filthy lucre has actually been a red herring, Long months of work have gone into the unravelling of all these ingenious clues, but my fascination with these puzzles and preoccupations with thoughts of treasure had obscured the simple truth which now seems to me to lie behind Saunier's sudden wealth. That truth seems to lie in the realm of the occult. The parchments themselves make no great effort to hide a key to that truth. Yet again, this document picks out more letters, easily identified by their small size, they spell out, quite simply, Rex Mundi, King of the Earth, an epithet applied to the devil, the Albigensian creative god of evil whom Saunier placed in his church. By the end, the main thrust of this second documentary is getting very, very judgy about Father Saunier. Lincoln builds to a frenzy, combining his parsing of the secret messages in the parchment with his analysis of an admittedly odd-looking baptismal font. That's the thing that's full of holy water in a Catholic church. Yeah, but this one sports a demon at its base. Many theories have been put forward concerning the significance of this figure, but I realized that the meaning of the whole statuary group was simple and quite startling. Rex Mundi, king of the earth, supports the holy water. Did you hear that mention of the Albigensian term Rex Mundi, the god of this world, i.e. the devil? And remember who the Albigensian crusade was waged against? We told you the Cathars was going to be all over this thing. So, what conclusion are we to reach? Lincoln thinks it's obvious. Saunier chose the god of this world over the true spiritual god, betraying his forebears and allying himself with the mysterious, wealthy benefactors. Did Saunier's riches come from treasure? Wealthy and distinguished people visited him. Is it possible that some of them, who provided him with all he needed, were his fellows in a secret society of the occult? Did he admit that though a priest, he acknowledged, like his heretical forebears, the supremacy of the devil? He knew that after his death, people would speculate on and search for the source of his wealth. And that search has led me down a tortuous trail. For too long, I had threaded a labyrinth, at the heart of which was a simple truth. Simple, obvious, and staring. Heavy, black, and pendulous.
which leads us inexorably to the third and final film in this series, Shadow of the Templars. After recounting the story of the Knights, Lincoln makes a number of unsupportable assertions about the reason for their founding, including the suggestion that they were formed at the behest of a powerful but shadowy group called, at the time, the Order of Our Lady of Sion. Sion here is an alternate spelling and pronunciation of the term Zion, so in other words, Jerusalem. He then connects this supposed group with a real-life secret society, the Priory of Sion, to which he suggests the original Order of Our Lady renamed themselves after a falling out with the Templars. Once again, there is no evidence the real-life Priory of Sion created the Knights Templar, though admittedly there are historical records indicating the secret society dates back to just after the fall of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. But the centerpiece of this whole film is Lincoln's interview with an honest-to-God living member of the Priory of Sion, Pierre Plantard. Plantard is at first a reluctant interviewee, but gradually warms to answering the documentarian's questions. Lincoln begins grilling him about the treasure at Rennes-le-Chateau. Monsieur Plantard, is there still a secret at Rennes-le-Chateau? Here, you are speaking of a material treasure. We are not talking of a material treasure. Let us say, quite simply, that there is a secret in Rennes-le-Chateau, and that it's possible that there is something else around Rennes-le-Chateau. Lincoln asks him about another fascinating connection between the mysterious priory and the mystery of Rennes. By the way, the painting by Poussin that Lincoln discussed in his previous film, the motto of the priory is the same Latin phrase. It in Arcadia Ego. Featured in that painting. Weird coincidence, right? And how does Poussin fit into this story? To be sure, in the Poussin painting, there are certain revelations. Poussin was an initiate and he therefore created his painting as an initiate. But he wasn't the only one in this story. There are other characters. In artistic expression, the truth is concealed as one uses symbolism. Lincoln is also able to confirm with Plantard that the Priory of Sion isn't just part of the past, but rather a going concern. Can you tell us whether the Priory of Sion still exists today? At this moment, Sion still exists. One of its more recent members, one of its last Grand Masters, was Jean Cocteau. Everyone knows this. Here Plantard is explaining that Jean Cocteau, the renowned filmmaker and artist who died in 1963, was a recent leader of the group. It's also notable that Plantard features in genealogical records of the line of medieval Frankish, that is, pre-French, kings called the Merovingian dynasty, who ruled from the 5th to the mid-8th century. So in addition to being high up in the Priory, Plantard had royal blood. All of this Lincoln discovered from the Priory documents found in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Sort of like the French version of the U.S. Library of Congress. Lincoln asks Plantard about this topic as well. Monsieur Plantard, over the centuries you have, uh, uh, how shall I put it, uh, you have supported the Priory of Zion. We have supported Zion, and Zion has supported us. We? Who are we? Well, I am speaking of the Merovingian line, for our line is descended from King Dagobert II. The Merovingians, it was they who made France. Without them, there would be no France. The Merovingians represent France. By the end of the film, though, Lincoln's real conclusion is revealed. He has decided that everything in his series, from Saunière's mysterious source of funds, to the composition of Poussin's painting, to the geography around Rennes-le-Chateau, to the supposed hermetic and mystical rites of the inner circle of the Knights Templar, they all revolve around the true treasure, the Pentacle. 
Ooh, is that a priceless artifact? Or another secret society? No, it's a... It's like a five-pointed star. The geometric shape. What kind of five-pointed star? The kind your teacher marked on your best finger paintings in kindergarten. The ordinary run-of-the-mill five-pointed star shape everybody who's listening to this is thinking of right now. How the fuck is this supposed to be the real treasure? I don't know. I told you this guy is a hapless, credulous true believer. The magician uses a pentacle enclosed within a circle for conjuration. But the pentacle is not only a symbol of black magic, of evil. The shape seemed to be assuming an unexpected significance in my research into the history of the Priory of Zion. And he sticks to his guns, even asking Plantard in his interviews about this secret he believes he's uncovered. The geometry is pentagonal, isn't it? I can't answer that. Lincoln clearly thinks this response is Plantard, the initiate, being cagey, but it seems obvious to us that the interviewee literally has no idea what the madman interviewing him is asking. And maybe regrets consenting to be interviewed in the first place. Overall, by the time you've watched all three of these films... Not that you're going to or should. You'll see that Lincoln has built an elaborate architecture of supposition around the story of Renle Chateau that he originally read in that French-language paperback. Or as Putnam and Wood put it, Between them, these three films greatly extend the story of Rennes le Chateau, from the original tale of a poor priest finding treasure and using the money to renovate the church. Henry Lincoln has introduced the Cathars, the Templars, the Priory of Sion, and the Geometry of the Hills. And he's hardly finished elaborating on his themes, but the next phase of explanation for Henry Lincoln's Frankenstein monster of mismatched conspiracy claims required him to team up with co-authors Michael Bajant, a professional photojournalist from New Zealand, and Richard Lay, a writer from New Jersey. Note that not one of these guys has any relevant credentials in the areas on which they presume to pontificate in their book. But that didn't stop Holy Blood upon its publication from becoming a runaway bestseller and inspiring the early 80s version of the same whirlwind of confusion, conspiracy, and pseudo-history that attended Dan Brown's later sins against common sense. So, let's take the time to really pull apart this book and find whatever small, undigested, kernel-like nuggets of historical fact we can extract from its stinking, repulsive mass of untruth. Undigested kernels? Have you returned to your upsettingly fecal metaphors? Oh, shit! No time to explain, Dana, because Lincoln, Bajan, and Lee are letting us know that they went into this, I think we're calling it research, with open minds. At the start of our search, we didn't know precisely what we were looking for, or for that matter, looking at. We had no theories and no hypotheses, and we had set out to prove nothing. On the contrary, we were simply trying to find an explanation for a curious little enigma of the late 19th century. The conclusions we eventually reached were not postulated in advance. We were led to them, step by step as if the evidence we accumulated had a mind of its own, was directing us of its own accord. We believed, at first, that we were dealing with a strictly local mystery. An intriguing mystery, certainly, but a mystery of essentially minor significance, confined to a village in the south of France. We believed that our investigation might help to illumine certain aspects of Western history, but we never dreamed that it might entail rewriting them. Still less do we dream that whatever we discovered could be of any real contemporary relevance. And explosive contemporary relevance at that. You know, I've read history written by real scholars, and it never sounds like this. No, it doesn't. If you've read a lot of rigorous, peer-reviewed academic history, you'll know that all of the more speculative, less mainstream conclusions any respectable historian reaches are tentative, 
questioning, and backed up by extensive, carefully analyzed sources. Moreover, these authors will always provide the best counterarguments and deal with them in the text itself. The Holy Blood guys are the exact opposite. Utterly confident of unorthodox interpretations, dismissive of the need for persuasive historical evidence, eager to push their narrative well past the breaking point of credibility, and totally unconcerned with any facts that don't fit. It's really remarkable. But don't take his word for it. Here's how the trio themselves explain why no qualified historians have ever proposed their grand thousand-plus-year conspiracy reading of such well-explored topics as early Christianity, Frankish royalty, the Knights Templar, the Cathars, and the Holy Grail romances. At this point, we pause to review the evidence at our disposal. It was leading us in a startling yet unmistakable direction. But why, we wondered, had this evidence never been subpoenaed by scholars before? The answer, we realized, lay in our own age and the modes or habits of thought which characterize it. Modern scholarship lays inordinate emphasis on specialization, which entails the segregation of knowledge into distinct disciplines. In consequence, the diverse spheres covered by our inquiry have traditionally been segmented into separate compartments. In each compartment, the relevant material has been duly explored and evaluated by specialists or experts in the field. But few, if any, of these experts have endeavoured to establish a connection between their particular field and others that may overlap it. There have been numerous treatises on the Grail romances, their origins and development, their cultural impact, their literary quality, and there have been numerous studies valid and otherwise of the Templars and the Crusades. But few experts on the Grail romances have been historians, while fewer still have displayed much interest in the complex, often sordid and not very romantic history behind the Templars and the Crusades. Similarly, historians of the Templars and the Crusades have, like all historians, adhered closely to factual records and documents. The Grail romances have been dismissed as mere fiction, as nothing more than a cultural phenomenon, a species of byproduct generated by the imagination of the age. To suggest to such a historian that the Grail romances might contain a kernel of historical truth would be tantamount to heresy. True, various occult writers, proceeding primarily on the basis of wishful thinking, have given literal credence to the legends, claiming that in some mystical way the Templars were custodians of the Grail, whatever the Grail might be. But there has been no serious historical study that endeavours to establish any real connection. The Templars are regarded as fact, the Grail as fiction, and no association between the two is possible. Got that? History has become too specialized for any of the brilliant scholars who study these topics to possibly make the connections that these unqualified yahoos have stumbled onto. As if no expert on the Knights Templar has ever researched the connections between the Templars and the Grail legends. In fact, even the non-academic but well-researched and carefully written books we relied on for our Templar section indeed cover the ways the Templars were featured in the popular literature of their time, especially the Grail romances. They just didn't go on to presume that the Grail stories were non-fiction, especially since the Grail itself was never mentioned in the 11-plus centuries before the appearance of said romances. Like, never. Not ever. Not once. Not anywhere. So no, they didn't assume that somehow, in spite of that, it was a real thing that dated back to the time of Christ, because assuming that would be stupid. Please also note the claims that their ideas would be heresy to academia. Not so subtly putting the legitimate academic world, with its demand for evidence and peer review, in the position of the all-powerful church theocracy that would brook no dissent from the Templars, the Cathars, etc. The authors preemptively write their claims in such a way as to prefigure themselves as martyrs for a new truth that's too hot for the establishment to touch. 
And they do this before qualified critics can even sharpen their knives. Okay, so we know what we're going to go through here will be poorly researched, contain huge and unwarranted imaginative leaps, and that it's written by people who think of themselves as brave truth-tellers and not credulous charlatans. Got it. So, with that in mind, let's plow through their research. Naturally, the book starts with their retelling of the Beringer Saunier Renle Chateau story, which we've already covered as the initial topic that caught Henry Lincoln's attention and led to the BBC pseudo documentaries. But while at the end of his films, Lincoln comes to the conclusion that the treasure found by Saunier was actually the secrets of the pentacle, whatever the fuck that means, here we're back in the midst of a traditional treasure hunt. The history of the village and its environs includes many possible sources of hidden gold or jewels. The Cathar heretics, for example, were reputed to possess something of fabulous and even sacred value, which, according to a number of legends, was the Holy Grail. There was also the vanished treasure of the Knights Templar, whose Grand Master, Bertrand de Blanchefort, commissioned certain mysterious excavations in the vicinity. There were other possible treasures as well. Between the 5th and 8th centuries, much of modern France was ruled by the Merovingian dynasty, which included King Dagobert II. Rennes-le-Chateau in Dagobert's time was a Visigoth bastion, and Dagobert himself was married to a Visigoth princess. The town might have constituted a sort of royal treasury, and there are documents which speak of great wealth amassed by Dagobert for military conquest and concealed in the environs of Rennes-le-Chateau. If Saunier discovered some such depository, it would explain the reference in the codes to Dagobert. The Cathars, the Templars, Dagobert II. And there was yet another possible treasure, the vast booty accumulated by the Visigoths during their tempestuous advance through Europe. This might have included something more than conventional booty, possibly items of immense relevance, both symbolic and literal, to Western religious tradition. It might, in short, have included the legendary treasure of the Temple of Jerusalem. But shortly, we learn a brand new evidence-free truth, that the wealth Saunier flaunted in his rebuilding of the church and surrounding areas is the result of blackmail have come not from anything of intrinsic financial value, but from knowledge of some kind. If so, could this knowledge have been turned to fiscal account? Could it have been used to blackmail somebody, for example? Could Cernier's wealth have been his payment for silence? We knew that he had received money from Johann von Habsburg. At the same time, his relations with the Austrian Archduke, according to all accounts, were notably cordial. On the other hand, there was one institution which, throughout Saunier's later career, seems to have been distinctly afraid of him. The Vatican. Could Saunier have been blackmailing the Vatican? Or was it? According to the fan mail Lincoln received after the BBC movies, the treasure isn't material at all, but a secret. The secret of the pinnacle or whatever? Fuck no, Dana. That's old news. Try to keep up. Of all these letters... One seemed to warrant special attention. It came from a retired Anglican priest. Our correspondent wrote with categorical certainty and authority. The treasure, he declared flatly, did not involve gold or precious stones. On the contrary, it consisted of incontrovertible proof 
that the crucifixion was a fraud and that Jesus was alive as late as A.D. 45. This claim sounded flagrantly absurd. What could possibly comprise incontrovertible proof that Jesus survived the crucifixion? We were unable to imagine anything which could not be disbelieved or repudiated. At the same time, the sheer extravagance of the assertion begged for clarification and elaboration. Wait, so now they've decided there isn't any treasure in the traditional pirate sense? Could you maybe explain the traditional pirate sense of treasure? Ah, uh, your bastard. Our matey. Run up the skulls and crossbones. There's Spanish galleons to be filled to the brim with ducats. Just waiting to be plundered. Lash yourselves to the mizzen, boys. It's pieces of eight or David Jones's locker for the lot of you scallywags. You're the gift that keeps on giving, Dana. So, they can't decide at all what this treasure is supposed to be, but that's the least of the problems in the early going. More concerning are the baseless claims these guys make about the topics we've previously covered in depth. For example, they suggest that this was the core of Cathar belief. The majority of Cathars seem to have regarded him as a prophet, no different from any other, a mortal being who, on behalf of the principle of love, died on the cross. There was nothing mystical, nothing divine about the crucifixion, if indeed it was relevant at all, which many Cathars appear to have doubted. You'll note that a very human Jesus is pretty much the opposite of the unblemished, immaterial, all-spirit Christ that qualified scholars cite as the mainstream of the Cathars' theology. The Holy Blood guys also conjure far more ties between the Templars and the Cathars than are warranted. For example, they connect up the Templars' confessions of worshipping a head of some kind, the mysterious Baphomet discussed previously, and suggest that because some knights in their confessions before King Philip's lawyers mentioned whipping the head with ropes or cords of some kind, for some reason, and because some Cathars were known to wear a sacred cord of some kind per the Holy Blood guys, that serves as evidence of a connection between the two groups. Really? But that breathtaking leap pales in comparison to their next conclusion. The cord, mentioned in the last item, is reminiscent of the Cathars, who were also alleged to have worn a sacred cord of some kind. But most striking in the list is the head's purported capacity to engender riches, make trees flower, and bring fertility to the land. These properties coincide remarkably with those ascribed in the romances to the Holy Grail. Wait, they think Bathomet is a Holy Grail? Well, maybe on this page they do, but they change their mind a bunch within the course of this one book. They're not going to be pinned down to one ludicrous suggestion, Dana. They also rewrite the history of the Templars, including why they were in Jerusalem in the first place, and what they were doing while they were there, and then they take those baseless speculations and make even less warranted assumptions on top of them. In the mid-12th century, a pilgrim to the Holy Land, one Johann von Würzburg, wrote of a visit to the so-called Stables of Solomon. These stables, situated directly beneath the temple itself, are still visible. They were large enough, Johann reported, to hold 2,000 horses, and it was in these stables that the Templars quartered their mounts. According to at least one other historian, the Templars were using these stables for their horses as early as 1124. It would thus seem likely that the fledgling order, almost immediately after its inception, undertook excavations beneath the temple. Such excavations might well imply that the knights were actively looking for something. It might even imply that they were deliberately sent to the Holy Land with the express commission of finding something. If this supposition is valid, it would explain a number of anomalies. Their installation in the royal palace, for example, and the silence of the chronicler. But if they were sent to Palestine, who sent them? We supposed that something was discovered in the Holy Land, either by accident or design, something of immense import, which aroused the interest of some of Europe's most influential noblemen. We further supposed that this discovery involved directly or indirectly 
a great deal of potential wealth, as well, perhaps, as something else, something that had to be kept secret, something which could only be divulged to a small number of high-ranking lords. Begging the question. We know, Dana. We know. But the whole time, they keep reminding you they are super skeptical dudes who aren't just accepting whatever nonsense they read. Obviously. We were extremely skeptical, like most people, about conspiracy theories of history. And most of the assertions quoted struck us as irrelevant, improbable, and or absurd. But the fact remained that certain people were promulgating them, and doing so quite seriously. Quite seriously. And there was reason to believe, from positions of considerable power. So, it's fun batting these declarations around like a wounded mouse, but the preponderance of the book is dedicated to proving to their readers that the Priory of Sion was behind a huge, millennia-spanning conspiracy that connects the Dan Brown, Jesus Mary Magdalene bloodline story, the Templars, the Cathars, the Merovingian kings, the Rosicrucians, and a bunch of other shit into one big plot. So let's talk about that. First of all, you remember that Pierre Plantard, the Priory member whom Lincoln interviewed for his ridiculous documentaries, stated that Jean Cocteau, the famous filmmaker and poet, was a recent grandmaster of the Priory. Well, he wasn't the only notable person named as a former leader. In fact, one of the documents that the Holy Blood guys dug up in the Bibliothèque Nationale was a complete list of all grandmasters. Not that the Holy Blood guys just believed this list was accurate from the get-go. When we first saw this list, it immediately provoked our skepticism. On the one hand, it includes a number of names which one would automatically expect to find on such a list. Names of famous individuals associated with the occult and esoteric. Nicolas Flamel, for instance, is perhaps the most famous and well-documented of medieval alchemists. Robert Flood, 17th century philosopher, was an exponent of hermetic thought and other arcane subjects. The list also includes a number of illustrious and improbable names. Names like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Filippi, who is better known as Botticelli. There are names of distinguished scientists like Robert Boyle and Sir Isaac Newton. During the last two centuries, the Priore de Sion's grandmasters are alleged to have included such important literary and cultural figures as Victor Hugo, Claude Debussy, and Jean Cocteau. By including such names, the list in the dossier secret could not but appear suspect. It was almost inconceivable that some of the individuals cited had presided over a secret society, and still more, a secret society devoted to occult and esoteric interests. Boyle and Newton, for example, are hardly names that people in the 20th century associate with the occult and esoteric. It's worth noting that da Vinci's appearance on that list is a key reason for the painter's prominence in the Dan Brown novel. The three Holy Blood musketeers end up deciding that this, as well as the other documents they've found, contain many clues that mesh with their other research, and therefore that the odds that all of these documents were forgeries in support of a hoax is unlikely. It's not as if the Bibliothèque Nationale documents were the only ones they found discussing the Priory. There were other unrelated researchers who were chronicling these topics. And in some instances, those authors had met with some strangely sinister ends. In 1973, a book was published entitled Les Dessus d'une Ambition Politique, The Undercurrents of a Political Ambition. This book, written by a Swiss journalist named Mathieu Pauli, recounts the author's exhaustive attempts to investigate the Priory de Sion. Like us, Monsieur Paoli eventually established contact with a representative of the order, whom he does not identify by name. But Monsieur Paoli did not have the prestige of the BBC behind him, and the representative he met would seem to have been of lesser status than Monsieur Plantar. Nor was his representative as communicative as Monsieur Plantar was with us. When we inquired about him, we were told that in 1977 or 1978, he had been shot as a spy by the Israeli government for attempting to sell secrets to the Arabs. 
Plus, many of the bibliotheque documents had named authors like Swiss researcher Henri Labineau, a pseudonym for Austrian art historian Leo Shidloff. And finally, nobody seemed to be making a dime off this stuff, so why would anyone go to the trouble of faking all of it? Decent point. And then there's the fact that Pierre Plantard is a documented descendant of a line that some would suggest has a legitimate claim on the French monarchy should such an institution ever return. And restoring the Merovingian line does seem to be at least one of the long-term aims of the Priory. So clearly there was something there. But what the Holy Blood guys turned it into is an awe-inspiring exercise in inflated claims, bizarre assumptions, and laughable scholarship. For example, this. By virtue of his dual blood, Merovee was said to have been endowed with an impressive array of superhuman powers. According to tradition, Merovingian monarchs were occult adepts, initiates in arcane sciences, practitioners of esoteric arts. They were often called the Sorcerer Kings. By virtue of some miraculous property in their blood, they could allegedly heal by laying on of hands, and according to one account, the tassels at the fringes of their robes were deemed to possess miraculous curative powers. They were said to be capable of clairvoyant or telepathic communication with beasts and with the natural world around them, and to wear a powerful magical necklace. They were said to possess an arcane spell which protected them and granted them phenomenal longevity, which history does not seem to confirm. They all supposedly bore a distinctive birthmark, which rendered them immediately identifiable and which attested to their semi-divine or sacred blood. This birthmark reputedly took the form of a red cross, either over the heart or between the shoulder blades. They seem to accept all of these claims about the Merovingians having some sort of superpowers. These, they naturally assume, are evidence that these nobles descended from Jesus, who was in some way superhuman. But recall that they think Jesus was just a dude. Remember, they went so far as to falsely claim that the Cathars thought the same thing as well, and that Constantine was trying to cover up the fact that most Christians thought Jesus wasn't divine back in the 400s, as repeated in the Da Vinci Code. But then, where do these miraculous powers come from? They also state the Priory documents link the Merovingians to the House of Benjamin, one of the tribes of ancient Israel, and they want to do that because they also decide that Mary Magdalene was from the House of Benjamin. Evidence? Who needs evidence? And in turn, Jesus was supposed to be of the house of David. Which the canonical gospel writers and other early Christians do, in fact, go to a great deal of trouble to try to prove, though few biblical scholars accept this claim. Thus, Jesus and Mary's bloodline is royal on both sides, and therefore they naturally spawned another noble dynasty when Mary arrived in France, which is what the Holy Blood guys think happened. And of course, they eventually come around to describing Mary's womb as the real Holy Grail, as we already heard reproduced in the Da Vinci Code movie. This also explains the French-language pun implied in their title. That is, Holy Grail in Old French is S-A-N-G-R-A-A-L, while the term for royal blood is S-A-N-G-R-E-A-L. So these doofuses think the whole reason we talk about a holy cup or plate as a grail instead of a line of descent from Jesus which it actually refers to, is because medieval chronicles fucked up their spelling. Yeah, they really suggest that. 
And by the way, we're not qualified to evaluate, but we've heard francophones suggest that they even screwed up the terms themselves. And to put this to rest, we're going to let Dana Unicorn and her husband, LG Sweet, both of whom are fluent in French, hash this thing out. So, Danica, tell me, are you sold on this whole holy blood, holy grail theory of how we got to be looking for a holy grail? No, I'm not. I think it's way too convenient. And I also don't think that's how language works. So I can imagine like a one-time confusion, but I find it unconvincing that everyone would make the same mistake in pronunciation and then draw the same faulty conclusion. Yeah, I mean, just the just the BS test on this is, hold on a second, did you say holy blood or holy grail? Did you say sangreal or sangreal? Like, usually you, you ask somebody, and if, you're, if you've got a totally bizarre interpretation, like suddenly you're saying grail instead of blood, you usually ask the other person if you've heard them right. It's a bit like those song lyrics that people mishear. No one mishears them in the same way all the time. I'm not French, but I could tell you one thing. Uh, a thousand years ago, French was very, very, very different from what it is today. And if uh, you need that put in perspective, 2,000 years ago, French was literally Latin. So in 2,000 years, you can go from Latin all the way to a completely different language like modern French. And a thousand years ago is halfway through that process. I think it's one of those sort of cutesy explanations that are fitted retroactively on a problem that never existed in the first place. And that's ultimately not very sort of intellectually satisfying or even funny. I mean, I don't know. I would have expected something a little bit more far-fetched from uh, this particular character. There's a modern word for this. I'd say this solution feels a bit retconned. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, you lovely people, you. But on the other hand, who cares? The whole thing is really stupid. The Holy Blood guys also decide that the focus on King Arthur's court and the Holy Grail was a mistake or conspiracy, and in fact the Grail was the bloodline of the Merovingians. And in France instead of England. Why? Because it's convenient for their presupposed nonsense. It's really important here that you understand we're taking on the best arguments of Lincoln, Bajan, and Lee. There are hundreds of pages of dipshittery here. For an example, this is one of our favorites of their dumbest class of arguments. In the narrative of the Gospels, there's a tradition that the Roman authorities would release a prisoner chosen by the crowd during Passover each year. They ask for Barabbas, who is a criminal accused of sedition, to be released instead of Jesus, who is about to be crucified. Scholars don't believe any such event ever happened, of course. The Romans don't give a shit about Passover, a Jewish holy day, and wouldn't let any seditionists avoid execution anyway. The theological point of the story is that everyone, represented by the bloodthirsty crowd, is responsible for the sin of murdering Jesus. But, of course, the Holy Blood guys have determined it's probably something else entirely. Of all the discrepancies, inconsistencies, and improbabilities in the Gospels, the choice of Barabbas is among the most striking and most inexplicable. One modern writer has proposed an intriguing and plausible explanation. He suggests that Barabbas was the son of Jesus, and Jesus a legitimate king. If this were the case, the choice of Barabbas would make sense. One must imagine an oppressed populace confronted with the imminent extermination of their spiritual and political ruler, the Messiah, whose advent had formerly promised so much. In such circumstances, would not the preservation of the bloodline be paramount, taking precedence over everything else? Would not a people faced with a dreadful choice prefer to see their king sacrificed in order that his offspring and his line might survive? So the crowd called for Jesus' blood to save his adult son Barabbas? even though there is no indication that Jesus ever had any progeny, and you would think that maybe the gospel writers would have mentioned this relationship in their discussion of Jesus' death. 
we told you it was stupid. This is all building to their claim about the crucifixion itself, specifically that it was faked. According to our scenario, a mock crucifixion on private ground was arranged with Pilate's collusion by certain of Jesus' supporters. It would have been arranged not by adherence of the message, but by adherence to the bloodline, immediate family, and or members of an inner circle. These individuals may well have had Essene connections or have been Essenes themselves. To the adherence of the message, however, the rank and file of Jesus' following, the stratagem would not have been divulged. On being carried to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, Jesus would have required medical attention, for which an Essene healer would have been present. And afterwards, when the tomb was found to be vacant, an emissary would again have been necessary. An emissary unknown to the rank and file disciples. This emissary would have had to reassure the unsuspecting adherents of the message to act as intermediary between Jesus and his following, and to forestall charges of grave robbing or grave desecration against the Romans, which might have provoked dangerous civic disturbances. Jesus wasn't dead when he was taken down from the cross, and he and Mary and their kid, or kids, relocated to France and intermarried with the Merovingians. And there was all kinds of evidence of this, which was in the temple in Jerusalem. Which is why the Priory of Sion created the Knights Templar and sent them to the Holy Land in the first place, using the Crusades as cover so they could recover the long-hidden documents. Yeah, that's pretty much it. The whole book is just a series of wouldn't-it-be-interesting-if statements, but they then go on to assume these idle fantasies are real and build still more fantasies on top of those. Then they come to seemingly logical conclusions based on their rank speculations. In ancient Judaism, religion and politics were inseparable. The Messiah was to be a priest-king, whose authority encompassed spiritual and secular domains alike. It is thus likely, indeed probable, that the temple housed official records pertaining to Israel's royal line. If Jesus was indeed king of the Jews, the temple is almost certain to have contained copious information relating to him. It may even have contained his body. By 1100, Jesus' descendants would have risen to prominence in Europe. They themselves would have known their pedigree and ancestry but they might not have been able to prove their identity to the world at large, and such proof may well have been deemed necessary for their subsequent designs. If it were known that such proof existed, or even possibly existed, in the precincts of the temple, no effort would have been spared to find it. This would explain the role of the Knights Templar, who, under a cloak of secrecy, undertook excavations beneath the temple in the so-called Stables of Solomon. On the basis of the evidence we examined, there would seem to be little question that the Knights Templar were in fact sent to the Holy Land with the express purpose of finding or obtaining something, and they would seem to have accomplished their mission. They would seem to have found what they were sent to find, and to have brought it back to Europe. What became of it then remains a mystery. But there seems little question. Something was concealed in the vicinity of Rennes-le-Chateau, for which a contingent of German miners was imported under the most stringent security to excavate and construct a hiding place. One can only speculate about what might have been concealed there. It may have been Jesus's mummified body. It may have been the equivalent, so to speak, of Jesus's marriage license and all the birth certificates of his children. It may have been something of comparably explosive import. Any or all of these items might have been referred to as the Holy Grail. Any or all of these items might, by accident or design, have passed to the Cathar heretics and comprised part of the mysterious treasure of Montségur. It reminds us of the Leonard Nimoy introduction to a classic Simpsons episode. Hello, I'm Leonard Nimoy. The following tale of alien encounters is true, and by true, I mean false. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies, and in the end, isn't that the real truth? The answer is no. Or, as Arthurian scholar Richard Barber commented, 
It would take a book as long as the original to refute and dissect the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail point by point. It's essentially a text which proceeds by innuendo, not by refutable scholarly debate. Though as Dr. Spence told us, these guys really appeared to believe what they were selling. I think it was Michael Bajan I heard talk once, and you know, I, I had no doubt that he sincerely believed what it was that he was saying. Because it seemed to him that all oh, this this is the thing that explains it. It fits all of these pieces together. You've got a plot there, you know. You've got your screenplay. You've got a story. But I think that they simply took that as being the story. And then because they were historical work, which you can't copyright, Dan Brown said, gee, this would be a great plot for a book. And, and, and for another book after that, and maybe some more after that. But for all the nonsense and self-indulgent doofusry of the Holy Blood Gang, they do deserve credit for one thing, which is popularizing in English-speaking countries one of the most astonishing discoveries of the 20th century, the ongoing existence of an ancient, truly secret society whose members included an array of the most important figures of the past and which is dedicated to bringing about a better world. The authors hang a lot of hopes on Plantard and the Priory and its treasure trove of secrets. We could not, and still cannot, prove the accuracy of our conclusion. It remains an hypothesis. But it is a plausible hypothesis which makes coherent sense. It explains a great deal, and it constitutes a more historically likely account than any we have encountered of the events and personages which 2,000 years ago imprinted themselves on Western consciousness, and in the centuries that followed, shaped our culture and civilization. If we cannot prove our conclusion, however, we have received abundant evidence from both their documents and their representatives that the Priore de Sion can. On the basis of their written hints and their personal conversation with us, we are prepared to believe that Sion does possess something, something which does in some way amount to incontrovertible proof of the hypothesis we have advanced. The religious impulse can be channeled in any of innumerable directions. It is a source of immense potential power, and it is all too often ignored or overlooked by modern governments founded on and fettered to reason alone. The religious impulse reflects a profound psychological and emotional need. And psychological and emotional needs are every bit as real as the need for bread, for shelter, for material security. We know that the Prairie de Sion is not a lunatic fringe organization. We know it is well financed and includes or commands sympathy from men in responsible and influential positions in politics, economics, media, the arts. We know that since 1956 it has increased its membership more than fourfold, as if it were mobilizing or preparing for something. And Monsieur Plantard told us personally that he and his order were working to a more or less precise timetable. We also know that since 1956 Sion has been making certain information available, discreetly, tantalizingly, in piecemeal fashion, in measured quantities just sufficient to provide alluring hints. And according to them, back in 1982 when this book was written, the Priory was even then in the process of fomenting a peaceful political transformation in France. Monsieur Plantard echoed Monsieur Chaumet in stating that in the near future, there would be a dramatic upheaval in France. Not a revolution, but a radical change which would pave the way for the reinstatement of a monarchy. This assertion was not made with any prophetic histrionics. On the contrary, Monsieur Plantard simply assured us of it, very quietly, very matter-of-factly, and very definitively. Again, Plantard and the Priory, unlike the rest of the book, seem legit. But... But what? But you're about to tell us the entire story of the Priory of Sion is full of shit too, right? Oh man, is it. So, Pierre Plantard isn't of royal blood? No. And none of these luminaries like Da Vinci and Isaac Newton and Victor Hugo were part of the historical Priory of Sion? No. 
And the Priory didn't found the Knights Templar? No, mostly because the actual honest-to-God Priory wasn't formed until 1956 by one, let's see, oh, Monsieur Pierre Plantard. So you've been lying to us this whole time. Au contraire, Miss Unicorn. If you rewind to what we previously said about the Priory, we indicated it's a real secret society, which it is since Pierre Plantard invented it, and that there exist documents indicating that the society stretches back to the Crusades, and that Plantard is of the royal blood of the Merovingians. Those are lies, though. Yeah, but the lies are told by the documents. We just told you that the documents exist, not that they were legitimate. Pretty sneaky, sis. My head hurts again. Knock back an ibuprofen with a shot of whiskey because this only gets more confusing. First things first, who is this Pierre Plantard guy, anyway? Here we again turn to the excellent Putnam and Wood and their book on the mysteries of Rennes-le-Chateau and the Priory of Sion. According to the birth certificate that Plantard supplied to Henry Lincoln during their initial conversations for the BBC documentary in which Plantard appears, he was born in 1920 to a noble family. It records his father as having the titles Comte de Saint-Clair and Comte de Redé. On the other hand, the birth certificate Lincoln himself located during his research indicated that Plantard's father was actually a butler. That is, valet de chambre. Plantard explained this away as fake documents the family had created to deceive the Nazis occupying France. But everything we know about the man indicates that this butler version is probably the truth, and that he himself likely falsified or caused to have falsified the later, more elevated record. In any case, by the 1940s, young Pierre was brimming with ambition to be somebody, damn it. To this end, he had created a newsletter that sought to recruit young French people, dejected in the wake of their defeat and occupation by Nazis, to a new order of knighthood. Putnam and Wood note that Plantard's exhortation was short on the specifics as to how this new order would restore France's lost glory, but the whole affair does tell us something about Plantard. Even at the age of 22, in his own eyes, he is someone apart from the crowd. He writes under an almost royal title. He aspires to be recognized as a leader. We would be remiss if we didn't also acknowledge, as the authors point out, that Plantard was a huge fan of Marshal Pétain, the military commander who was installed as the head of the Nazi-dominated Vichy French government, and who therefore oversaw such horrors as the mass deportations of French Jews to death camps in Poland. I hate Eleanor Nazis. Anyway, Plantard loved this guy, and in 1940 sent him a fan letter warning him of a Jewish Masonic conspiracy. In any case, the young man's love of the government wasn't reciprocated. He was arrested in 43 for distributing an unauthorized newsletter and spent a few months in prison. After the war, he got married, spent more than a decade in Switzerland, and then eventually relocated to the French town of Annemasse near the Swiss border in 1956. He took a job as a draftsman and got to work on his real life's calling, refashioning his humble origins and negligible impact on the world into a backstory fit for a superhero. And just as fictional. The first major development came with Plantard's visits to the area around Rennes-le-Chateau during the 1950s. Though the man himself claimed he hadn't made these visits, locals vouched for the fact that he was there repeatedly and described his activities this way. He behaved strangely and furtively, and though he talked a lot, it was difficult to follow his meaning. He was interested in archaeological and natural sites and seemed to be building up a file of the locality. 
The second big moment was the founding of the real-life Priory of Scion, which occurred on June 25, 1956, with Plantard and three others sponsoring. We know this because it turns out even secret societies must be registered by the all-powerful French bureaucracy. Ugh, it is, um, oh, how we say, uh, de rigueur. This version of the Priory only lasted until 1961, when Plantard founded a new version that then lasted into the 1980s. So, no Templars, no Cathars, no Merovingians. But, as we promised, the Priory of Sion is a real, though in reality, a pretty lame, thing. Plantard turned to the task of establishing a far deeper, more important history for the Priory, one which he could use to bolster his completely fallacious claims to be descended from nobility. By 1964, Plantard or his co-conspirators began depositing various documents aimed at this end in the Bibliothèque Nationale under a variety of false names. Dr. Spence mentions that this issue, that of fraudulent documents being added to archives, is a difficult problem for those who run such institutions to deal with. He and some of his accomplices begin planting documents in archives, including the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is the kind of holy of holy for French historical records. The thing that archives, any archives that has rare, irreplaceable materials, is afraid of is people stealing them. And people do. You really have to guard against that constantly. So whether it's the British Public Record Office or the Hoover Institution or whatever it is, all of them have some kind of precautions against people walking off with stuff because they've had lots of experience with that happening. So the main thing that you're afraid of is stuff disappearing from archives. But there's this flip side of it of people planting things in archives. Because what that does is you see, if you can take your forged documents and you can actually put them in a recognized archive where people can find them, well, then see, that that gives you the pedigree you wanted. So he created these things called the, the uh, Documents Secrets, the secret documents which supposedly told the history of the order. And some of those were the Bibliothèque Nationale, other copies showed up elsewhere. And gee, if you can go into the BN and find this, well, then it must be real. On the other hand, what could be done and what was done with the ability to forensically examine those documents. See, this is the thing. Once you present the documents, then somebody's going to look at them and they're going to find out that they're not what they purport to be. People will still cling to this idea, but they were, they were forgeries. They were just concocted. And as part of his conspiracy to advance his organization, they were planted to give it credibility, which in the minds of some people, including the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they bought it hook, line and sinker. In this case, the first forged document was the one that traces Merovingian ancestry up to the family of modern descendant Pierre Plantard, the author of which was indicated to be one Henri Labineau. You mentioned him before, didn't you? That his real name was Leo Shitloff? Yeah, about that. It turns out that the name Henri Labineau was fabricated by Plantard, who wrote the Merovingian documents himself, thus providing his own royal pedigree. Well then, who was Shitloff? Oh, he was a real guy who had nothing whatsoever to do with this story, except that he was an art historian who died in Vienna in October of 1966. Plantard just picked his name from the obituaries and decided to identify him as the real author of the Labineau papers because no one could check with a dead man to uncover the deception. In fact, Plantard, being a real stickler for detail, established the connection between Labineau and Shidloff by forging an obituary letter acknowledging Shidloff's use of Labineau as a pen name. This letter was sent to an Italian Catholic newsletter on October 17th by one Lionel Burris, another real person. 
What makes the letter super interesting, though, is the fact that Burris had died in an accident a month before he supposedly wrote it. Jesus, that's twisted. Sure is, but in a pre-internet era, it's also a pretty solid way to cover your tracks. Anyway, Plantard had these forged documents, under Labanos and other names, but he needed some way to make them seem legit, which is where his research around Rennes-le-Chateau came in. He knew Beringer Saunier had found parchments hidden in a pillar in the church during his renovations back in the 1890s. He also knew that those parchments had never been recovered. So he apparently struck upon the idea of claiming that Labano had acquired the genealogy based on a translation done at Beringer Saunier's request in 1892, a translation of one of the missing parchments. Presto changeo! Suddenly Labano's translation has an entire mysterious history that lends its credibility. If, that is, you are the holy blood rubes. Well, this wasn't just done for their benefit. Plantard had no idea that his ideas would eventually get swept up into Lincoln & Co.'s grand reinterpretation of all of Western history. He just wanted people to think his secret society had an ancient pedigree, as did his family. By the mid-60s, Plantard and his friend Philippe de Cherisy had decided to try to make some money off this whole forged documents, Rennes-le-Chateau scenario. De Cherisy was, in many ways, the kind of man that Plantard wanted to make himself out to be an actual, honest-to-God, hereditary marquis who worked as a writer and humorist, often in the entertainment industry. Using his connections, de Cherisy got in contact with a radio producer, Francis Blanche. It was Blanche, who Putnamin would suggest, decided the whole Wren story might make a good radio feature, but that they would need additional evidence in the form of fabricated parchments to replace the missing ones, which would make the whole thing more compelling. At this point, de Cherisy appears to have taken it upon himself to generate copies of those lost parchments by taking quotes from two different Bible stories and embedding secret messages in them. The first coded message talked about the treasure of King Dagobert II, who is the last of the Merovingian kings, while the second, much more complex cipher, concealed a nearly inscrutable message. Putnam and Wood translated as, Shepherd, no temptation. Poussin and Seigneurs hold the key. Peace. 681. By the cross and this horse of God, I destroy this guardian demon at midday. Blue apples. Yep. Clear as mud. But it does contain a mention of Poussin, whom you'll recall as the painter whose painting, The Shepherds of Arcady, depicts a tomb with a Latin inscription meaning even I, death, am in Arcady, and that Poussin was in the fake list of grandmasters of the priory, along with Newton and other luminaries and that the supposedly ancient motto of the supposedly ancient priory was almost identical to the phrase in the painting. So de Cherisy worked this Poussin link, along with the word Scion, into the coded message he created to strengthen the connections between the painting and the discovery by Beringer Saunier, even though all of these connections are in fact fabricated. Incidentally, while that phrase sounds all cool and mysterious, art historians generally accept that what Poussin meant was simply that even in a beautiful natural setting, death is always waiting in the wings. A pretty common sentiment in art, meant to encourage the enjoyment of life and hardly something that portends deep, meaningful secrets. So, per instructions, de Cherisy created his fabricated translations of the parchments he had supposedly found, but then the whole radio program idea appears to have fizzled out. So de Cherisy and Plantard seem to have latched on to a new idea, but getting it off the ground would involve an act of murder. 
Well, the murder was of the Henri Labineau pseudonym that Plantard had invented as the author of his forgeries. By this point, de Cherisy and Plantard were working together on an even more extensive series of forgeries under Labineau's name, which would be deposited in the Bibliothèque in 1967 as The Secret Files of Henri Labineau. But they apparently decided these could appear posthumously, and so Plantard did the bait-and-switch that ascribed Labineau's work to a dead, totally unrelated scholar. And the reason he decided to kill off the Labineau character was, per Putnam and Wood, likely because he had brought his new friend Gerard de Sede in to write about the mysteries that he and de Cherisy had uncovered. You may recall de Sede was a guy who wrote the book about Rennes le Chateau that caught Henry Lincoln's attention and got the whole Holy Blood Bowl rolling. Desed was already writing about occult and esoteric topics, and as Plantard's secret scheme developed, he seems to have decided that his enthusiastic and none-too-circumspect writer-friend would be the perfect conduit for delivering his fabrications to the world as a legitimate mystery. So Desed apparently worked on the book for a couple of years in the mid-60s, all while Plantard and Desheresy fabricated new materials for their clueless friend to find. Eventually, The Accursed Treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau was published, became a popular paperback, and ended up in the hands of Henry Lincoln, who eventually blew the whole thing even more out of proportion than the inventors of the whole mystery had intended. So what was Plantard's endgame with this? It's hard to say. He appeared to be much better at the tactics of formulating this deception than he was at leveraging it into some sort of grand achievement. As we noted earlier, nobody was making money off this scheme, in spite of the attempted radio documentary, except maybe Desed from the sales of his paperback. But surely someone with Plantard's gifts could have pulled some sort of complex David Mamet double bluff grifting scenario to help part dumb rich people from their cash. Like, uh, help restore the true French monarchy. We need a lot of money for research to prove the legitimacy of these documents. But when I'm named king, I'll make you Duke Jared Kushner. But of course, that's not how it worked out. Instead, Plantard attracted the attention of Henry Lincoln, who then spun the story into a rewriting of the history of Christianity, something that, clearly, Plantard and de Cherisy had no intention of conveying through their original scam. And then there's the hilarious moment, which we already covered, where Plantard is completely flummoxed by Lincoln's questioning him about the deep secret meaning of the pentacle. The geometry is pentagonal, isn't it? I can't answer that. We know you can't see this, but the look on Plantard's face is 100% a grifter realizing he's lost control of his grift. Like, who the fuck is this dipshit, and what is he doing with my beautiful story? Yeah, it's really fun to watch. And of course, things got even worse when the Holy Blood guys published their book, which repeated the Merovingian nonsense Plantard had fabricated, but then claimed the Merovingians were the Holy Bloodline. All of a sudden, the butler's son, who wanted to be a part of an ancient noble line, was now the actual goddamned heir of Jesus Christ, which Plantard immediately started trying to distance himself from. And eventually, after he had cast and recast his story of the Priory, he got into some legal trouble, had his house raided, leading to the discovery by authorities of forged documents proclaiming Plantard the rightful king of France, and he was forced to admit to his entire scheme under oath. Which again, because we live in an age of miracles, I can play for you right now. Que l'honneur des Français consiste à continuer la guerre aux côtés de leurs alliés. Et nous sommes à le faire. No, Jesuit. I think that's Charles de Gaulle rallying French resistance after Nazi invasion of 1940. 
no, that's de Gaulle discussing the situation in the French colony of Algeria in the 1950s. Je ne puis vivre personnellement sans mon art, mais je n'ai jamais placé cet art au-dessus de tout. S'il m'est nécessaire, au contraire, c'est qu'il ne se sépare de personne et me permet de vivre tel que je suis au niveau de tous. That's Albert Camus' Nobel Prize acceptance speech. J'accuse le lieutenant-colonel du Paty de Clam d'avoir été l'ouvrier diabolique de l'erreur judiciaire. J'accuse le général Mercier de s'être rendu complice, tout au moins par faiblesse d'esprit, d'une des plus grandes iniquités du siècle. That is a dramatization of the famous J'accuse editorial during the Dreyfus affair. Soldats de ma vieille garde, après 20 ans, je viens vous dire adieu. La France a capitulé. Aussi, ne m'oubliez pas. No, that's an actor portraying Napoleon's abdication speech. <laughs> You know, I get the feeling that you're just playing increasingly ridiculous stereotype French language quotes. Instead, he uses as a chance to put his testicles all over me. Uh, his what? Uh, how you say, uh, octopus, uh, testicles. No, tentacles. N-T. Tentacles. Ah, tentacles. There's a big difference. <laughs> no. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English knickets. Navigator to pilot. Pretty girl at three o'clock. Over. Pilot to navigator. Over. Roger. We'll go. I pierce you with the ek ek of love, flower pot. Les poissons, les poissons, how I love les poissons. Love to chop and to serve little fish. First I cut off their heads and I pull out their bones. I'm a weakness as a two-door. No. But wives her. But wives her. But wives her. Oh, Jesuit, another frog joke? Okay, we don't actually have the audio, though we really tried to find it. But it's true, Plantard eventually gave up the whole game, back in the 90s. Not that this convinced any true believers of anything except that the powers that be must have gotten to Plantard and threatened him should he continue to expose the truth. So, at the end, all we're left with is some duped writers, a hapless provocateur, and one genuine, still kind of weird mystery about a parish priest who found a mysterious fortune late in the 19th century, and some strange, disappeared, inexplicable parchments that may have contained some sort of secrets. But... But what? Come on, Jesuit, what's the scam now? Well, would you be shocked if I told you that even the Rennes-le-Chateau story is self-serving bullshit cooked up by yet another con man? There's a fourth level to this goddamn story? There is indeed. We once again turn to Putnam and Wood to figure out how the whole thing originated. 
But first, let's note that Bill Putnam is a fully qualified academic, a former archaeology professor at the University of Bournemouth, and that John Wood is a former director of underwater engineering. Both men bring a level of academic rigor to their analysis that stands in stark contrast to the work of Lincoln, Bajant, and Lee. In other words, they're genuine, rigorous, critical scholars who won't accept hearsay or connect tantalizing threads to make a more durable tale. So, what did they uncover about the real truth of the priest, his improvement projects, the parchments found in the altar, his mysterious funds, and how the legend grew up around it? Well, first of all, and we promise we're not going to do another surprising reversal from here on out, Berenger Saunier was a real guy who really was at that church and really did undertake huge, very expensive renovations of that church, as well as the grounds and a rather large residence. It's rather large. This really did attract the attention of his superiors, who then stripped him of his assignment when he couldn't explain where he had gotten the money and he did operate for years after that as a rogue priest, doing masses under his own authority until his death in 1917. So what's the fabrication? Pretty much everything else. And it starts with a series of lurid treasure-hunting stories in 1956 in a newspaper called Dana en Francais? Le Dépêche du Midi. Or The South of France Dispatch. As the authors note, No reference to treasure, secret codes, or anything else of an extraordinary nature can be found before this publication. Do you remember when we mentioned a guy named Noel Corbu way back at the beginning of our Holy Blood discussion? He was the developer who purchased the Ville Bethany property that Sonia had built and where his housekeeper Now to main, now to main, notch, notch, now to main, sign him all lived after his death. He intends to turn it into a successful resort in the French countryside. Yeah, that guy. Well, though he bought the property in 1946, a decade on, it appears that he wasn't quite getting the return on his investment that he had sought. So he struck upon a brilliant idea. Why not invite a not-particularly-hard-nosed journalist to visit the place, wine and dine him to a fairly well, and then spin him a yarn that will make Rennes-le-Chateau seem not just relaxing and bucolic, but as if it is the center of a decades-long intrigue, and that just maybe it hides a fabulous treasure that's waiting for some tourist to find it? Wait, this whole thing stems out of an attempt to flog a failing resort? That is such a disappointing origin story. Uh, it's as if you were telling us that the Shroud of Turin started out as a before image meant to sell a detergent that gets stubborn human-shaped stains out of linen. That is, in fact, the risk of looking behind the curtain and seeing the man pulling the levers. But indeed, Putnam and Wood conclude that the whole saga starts with this 1956 travel series, in which author Albert Solomon published stories with titles like The Fabulous Discovery of the Curé with Billions. The accompanying drawings depict Sonier, a treasure chest, and four rolled-up parchments, in case the over-the-top text isn't enough. Corpu, it seems, not only pulled out all the stops in terms of hospitality, from the best suite to the finest food and drink, but also spent days regaling the journalist with his first-person tales of the secret that Sonier's lady took with her to the grave, the various coins and precious items he claimed to have found as crumbs of a much larger still-hidden treasure, etc., this is also where we first hear of the mysterious parchments found in the Visigothic altar pillar. And Corbu also appears to be the source of some other details. For example, he suggested that the reason the priest traveled so extensively was so he could melt down all of the gold he had found into ingots, which could then be sold without arousing the suspicion that ancient crowns, scepters, and other precious items might engender. Okay, so the lost treasure was a fabrication by Corbu probably based on rumors that have circulated around the town during Sonier's life and downfall. But we still don't know how Sonier got the huge amount of money he spent on renovations in the first place. 
Not so fast. Putnam and Wood argue it's pretty obvious where a lot of the money came from if you just look at the records of the church's proceedings against Sonier. Which were still grinding their way through the church judicial process when he died. Those indicate that, after the initial legitimate funds that the priest had raised from benefactors and parishioners to remodel the church proved insufficient for Sonier's aims, he began traveling around France, Italy, and Switzerland, offering his services to say masses for believers, beloved late family members, a traditional practice among devout Catholics intended to improve the decedent's experience in the afterlife. However, Sonier was selling a number of masses he couldn't possibly have actually conducted, meaning that he was fraudulently taking these people's money for services he couldn't render. The authors acknowledge that even with this fraud, which was generating a huge number of daily donations through the mail at points, Sonier still couldn't have accumulated the fantastic sums that he eventually spent. Amounting to over $2 million in today's money. And so there remains a mystery as to how he got the rest, but there are plenty of candidate explanations. For example, the authors provide correspondence indicating that he did indeed continue to receive donations from wealthy individuals, but that those donations were to remain anonymous as a condition of the gifts themselves. There's also a possibility that during the remodeling around the cemetery in the parish, he and Marie may have made some late-night raids into graves for valuables from the deceased. Unproven, maybe unprovable, but far more likely than finding a massive hitherto unknown treasure or blackmailing the Vatican with indisputable proof of Jesus babies. But of course, that was not the place where the story stopped evolving, because as we noted before, Plantard's forged documents and other manipulations put his friend Desed on the case, and in 1967 he published his book on the supposedly accursed supposed treasure. Clearly, Putnam and Wood are gleeful, relating the total nonsense that Desed, encouraged by his friends and their forgeries, adds on to the already expanded version of the story Corbu had related a decade before. Quote, and what a story now emerged. No longer was the tale confined to the strange activities of a local cure, spending large sums of money acquired by dubious means. We are now introduced to a wider setting in which Sonnier appears as one participant in a shadowy world of secret societies, conspiracies, and unexplained death. Furthermore, a glance at the book shows an impressive list of references. Research has been carried out and archives have been consulted. Surely we have here a work which all serious historians ought to take into account? Nice sarcasm, gentlemen. Of course, the book is not a great source for reliable history. Plantard would hardly have encouraged his friend to look into the fraud if he thought Desed would uncover the truth. And indeed, the author has no compunctions about playing fast and loose with his supposedly nonfiction narrative. For example, Putnam and Wood note several occasions where Desed recounts conversations word for word that were held between two people who were long dead and for which there were no records. Even more importantly, Desed claims to have seen copies of the fabled parchments that Sonier found, both of which contained ciphers that readers of his book later explicated. But in spite of the fact that these parchments had at that point supposedly been missing for 70 years, he offers no explanation of who provided these copies to him or what circumstances brought them to his attention in the first place. Now, in spite of all the fabrications that have been added to the story, there are some weird elements to the history of Rennes-le-Chateau that we've already mentioned, and which are absolutely true. There are a bunch of weird decorations in the church, though none of them seem to be connected to the terrible secret of the pentacle. Whatever that is, as Lincoln intimated in his film. For example, do you remember when we mentioned the seemingly inexplicable inscription over the church's doorway reading, This Place is Terrible, in Latin? Well, that turns out to have a perfectly orthodox Catholic explanation. 
It's like half a quote from Genesis, specifically chapter 28, verse 17, which appears in the middle of the story of Jacob and Esau. We're not a Bible study. Look it up. In these verses, Jacob wakes up from a vision where God was talking to him and realizes the ground where he had this vision is now holy. So the full quote in the King James Version, verses 16 and 17, is... And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The various Bible versions don't all say dreadful or terrible. Some say <clears throat> fearful. Some say awe-inspiring. Some say awesome, in the pre-1980s sense of inspiring awe. But if you read it in context, Sonier's stonemason is just putting in a reference to the holiness of the church building by half-quoting a familiar Bible story about the holiness of the house of the Lord. A lot of Rennes-le-Chateau weirdness evaporates like this when you take a closer look. Having surveyed the entire story of Rennes-le-Chateau and dug as deeply as facts and authentic documents will allow, Putnam and Wood wrap up their fantastic treatment of the strange tale this way. Sonier was an unusual man. Plantard and de Cherisy were unusual in the extreme. The amount of effort that the latter two expended in inventing the puzzles, genealogies, and the fake history is immense. Our critics will say, as others have done, that no one would have done this simply to mislead. Financial gain does not appear to have been their motive. To which we reply, strange as it may seem, all the evidence indicates that they did exactly that. By intention or not, these two men carried out one of the most amazing historical deceptions that there has ever been. You hear that? Finally, we have hit the bedrock of the story. There's no more bullshit to uncover, though it's still kind of dizzying to look back at everything we've dug through to get here. To offer the briefest possible recap, a humble priest in the French countryside develops caviar tastes on a hamburger helper salary. He does some dirt to get cash to rebuild his rural parish to unheard-of glory, is removed by the Catholic powers that be, and leaves only grand construction and rumors of ill-gotten gains in his wake. A woman who is, for all intents and purposes, his widow, sells the mansion she now owns to a developer who has big plans for the place. When these don't work out, he concocts a story tying the corrupt priest to a mysterious treasure and some ancient parchments, the very idea of which he fabricated. The news stories get the attention of a totally unrelated fabulist with dreams of becoming a king and founding a legendary society. He, in turn, convinces a friend to accept a whole pile of fraudulent claims, tying the developer stories together with the fabulists. That friend writes a book about the whole thing. Then, by sheer fucking chance, a very ambitious, incredibly easy-to-fool filmmaker picks up the story and brings it to an English-speaking audience— then ropes in some equally credulous collaborators, and they spin a still larger web of complete raving nonsense around the existing story. So crazy a confection that even the fabulist wants off the merry-go-round. Finally, a mediocre writer of thrillers is handed a set of notes by his wife, who read the crazy book that the world's least skeptical researchers have built out of layer upon layer of poorly researched and or fraudulent nonsense. And the book that he writes, based on those notes, goes on to become a huge publishing phenomenon, inspiring sequels, a series of unwatchable films, and a whole new movement of people who want to believe a bunch of bullshit alternative history without doing their homework. And, let's not forget that in spite of all the self-deluding, the conning, the pranks, and the other nonsense in that long story, there is very much a conspiracy here. It's a conspiracy of hoaxers and cons on one side, and on the Da Vinci Code Holy Blood side, what we can only call deliberate, self-interested credulity. 
And with that, in the words of Daniel Plainview, I'm finished. At least I'm finished with those topics. Now we can move back to a more traditional secret society, the Rosicrucians. What do you mean, traditional? Well, I mean the Rosicrucians have been around for a long time. It's not like one dude created them out of thin air 65 years ago, as was the case with the Priory of Sion. Oh, so the Rosicrucians were actually founded when they claimed to have been founded? Well, uh... I mean, because we know when the Templars were founded. Counter-arguments by the Holy Blood Idiots aside, they were charted in 1119 in Jerusalem with witnesses and everything. So the Rosicrucians are like that? Let's maybe say the Rosicrucians are an interesting middle path between the Templars and the Priory of Sion. They, for real, date back to the early 17th century. But hardly any Rosicrucians, either past or present, appear to accept that date for the actual founding of the Order. Most insist on an origin point that is centuries older, starting with a man whose name, conveniently enough, is that of the order itself. Then what's the deal with this founder guy? When was he a going concern? That's where the Priory of Sion comparisons come in. It seems very likely that this man, Christian Rosenkreutz, never existed per se. You're getting weird on me again, Jesuit. And my ibuprofen and whiskey supply is getting dangerously low. Hold your horses, Unicorn. The Rosicrucians share elements with the other societies we've surveyed, but are mostly notable for what makes them unique. So let's take the opposite tack from what we did when excavating the many layered lies of the Da Vinci Code and start from the verifiable facts before we fill in the strange and legendary history of this fascinating group. First things first, a discussion of our sources. While the Rosicrucians pop up in conspiracy theorists' writing surprisingly frequently, our diligent efforts to track down well-regarded mainstream histories of the movement largely foundered. There are some notable surveys of the topic, but not many, and aside from the two books that we're consulting, most are unavailable for anything less than truly usurious prices online. We love you folks, but we don't $131 for a single used out-of-print hardcover love you. Now, there are tons of books out there purporting to relate the secrets of the Rosicrucians, or the mystical origins of the Rosicrucians, but you know how we feel about those books. That is, unless they're hilarious, there is no point in advertising unqualified internet Yahoo's opinions about anything. Again, we have to stress that only applies if those opinions are not hilarious. With those limitations in mind, then, we are happy to have found two books that seem, in spite of their author's shared tendencies toward mild woo-wooery, to be relatively well-grounded in historical fact and not overly subject to wild conjecture. In other words, neither of these is rosy blood, crossy grail, if you get our drift. The first is a slim volume that's just chock-full of interesting material called simply The Rosicrucians. Its author, Christopher McIntosh, was definitely a little more comfortable with mysticism than we might prefer, but he's overall got a good head on his shoulders. Jesuit wasn't so sanguine when he read this passage about magic at the beginning of the book, though. Quote, The mental effects all take their starting point from the telepathy, while the physical ones may be regarded as deliberately induced poltergeist effects, in which objects are made to move by some curious power of the unconscious mind. 
I have come to increasingly believe that the actual energy used is the same energy that causes a dowsing rod to twist in the hands of the water diviner, probably some form of earth magnetism that can be channeled by the right cerebral hemisphere. End quote. Yeah, that didn't sound so promising, but then I realized those dipsy thoughts belong to a totally different guy who wrote the foreword to the book. Macintosh indeed says some stuff that makes us slightly queasy. He's a little too comfortable talking about how astrological signs portended the rise of Rosicrucianism, for example, and doesn't distance himself from various magical claims as strongly as we might prefer. But the study of Rosicrucianism seems to attract those of a sort of mystical-friendly temperament, and Macintosh's clear, straightforward presentation mostly stays on the straight and narrow. Our other guide here is Tobias Churton, author of The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians. He's also a little wooish for our normal taste, being, as his author bio points out, a perfected Knight of the Rose Qua and the Pelican, 18th degree, ancient and accepted right. Which I mean, okay, I guess. Jesuit, what are you doing here? Whatever this Rosicrucian shit is, it sounds like Churton bought it hook, line, and sinker. Is this book a just-so story of the truth of the Rosy Cross? Again, it's not that simple. He indeed seems deeply enmeshed in mysticism, pointing out in the introduction to his book that he finds himself more attracted to fictional depictions of spiritual visions than of gritty reality, that he finds the former, when properly handled, truer than the latter. And just as with Macintosh, he does seem a little too comfortable relating, for example, the importance of astrological signs as foretelling the movement's ascension without quickly and clearly distancing himself from those opinions. But on the other hand, who cares? He's enough of a scholar to have been named a lecturer on the Western esoteric tradition by the University of Exeter in Great Britain. And, it turns out, he was a writer for that 1980s BBC documentary series, The Gnostics, which we excerpted when discussing the Catharist's theological disputes with the Catholic Church. And that series is pretty great. Also, that Knight of the Rose Croix and Pelican 18th degree stuff is not so much purely Rosicrucian as it is Masonic with a Rosicrucian twist. So, with our slightly unorthodox guidebooks in hand, we survey the limited, sometimes confusing, but unquestionably interesting facts about the beginnings of this movement and its legendary founder, Christian Rosenkreutz. Here's the very, very short version of the real, verifiable facts of the origin story of the Rosicrucians. In 1614, a pamphlet appeared in Germany called the Fama Fraternitatis Rosiae Crucis oder Die Bruderschaft des Ordens der Rosenkreuzer. So glad you had to pronounce that. It announced the existence and origins of a secret society of learned Christians founded by the leader who gave the group its name. The book, along with its follow-up, the Confessio Fraternitatis, which was published in 1615, invited all learned men of Europe to join this society, which would shortly begin revolutionizing the world through the application of ancient wisdom and modern science. Finally, in 1616, a third book was published, The Chemical Romance of Christian Rosenkreuz, which is completely different from the other two manifestos, but is considered an important part of the Rosicrucian phenomenon. These anonymous books spread like wildfire across Europe, leading scholars and students to take sides for or against the society, causing many to seek to join, and generally resulting in a sort of Rosicrucian fever whose repercussions are still felt in the secret societies of today. Okay, with those basic facts out of the way, let's dig a little deeper. First things first, as we noted before, there was very likely no such historical figure as Christian Rosenkreuz. His existence and biography appears to have been ginned up to provide a backstory to the ideas contained in those early Rosicrucian works, which began appearing in the early 17th century in the German duchy of Württemberg. The region boasted a great university, Tübingen, whose most notable contemporary graduate, Johannes Kepler, 
was in the midst of the research and writing that would lead to his groundbreaking laws of planetary motion. So, real-life, insanely great science was going on in the intellectual ferment centered in this institution. But remember, this is the early 17th century, so that means many of the people who were working on these scientific breakthroughs were also working on difficult problems in such sciences as alchemy and astrology. Those aren't sciences, Jesuit. Agreed. They're both fantasies based on human misunderstandings of the way the universe works. But at the time, the smartest, best-educated people in the world didn't know that. And some of their most diligent efforts to develop knowledge in what turned out to be intellectual dead ends inadvertently helped us to develop the real, objective, fruitful sciences that have revolutionized human existence over the past four centuries. Regardless, though, back to the subject of Christian Rosenkreutz and his almost certain non-existence. It's hardly unheard of for a legendary figure to have stories associated with him, but the details that are available to flesh out the biography of this almost definitely fictional person are pretty extraordinary. We know, for example, that he was born in 1378, and that though he was descended from nobility, he was left in a cloister, that is, a monastery, at age five. Our primary sources don't include this stuff, but various other versions of the story provide specifics about his past. That, in fact, he was the final scion of the legendary family of Gammelshausen. Bless you. That wasn't a sneeze, Jesuit. Anywho, the family was reportedly wiped out by Konrad von Marburg, a nobleman, priest, and famous 13th-century persecutor of heretics. He destroyed the Gammelshausens, these sources report, because they were a secret outpost of the Cathar heresy. Quelle horreur! Now it definitely sounds better when she says it. In this version, young CRC, as contemporary texts usually refer to our Christian Rosenkreuz, was saved from this fate, spirited away to a monastery to keep him safe when his family was wiped out. In fact, some say that he was the actual treasure spirited out of the Mont Segur during its fall. See our earlier discussion of the Cathar's fiery demise. Hey, how did we end up switching roles in this section? I'm supposed to do the historical narratives. Now, this Germelhausen scenario is fun, but almost immediately runs into some problems. For example, Conrad von Marburg lived from 1180 to 1233. The fall of Mont Segur was in 1244, and as we noted, CRC's birth date is given in our primary sources as 1378. It would be tough for him to be spirited away from the destruction of his legendary family in the mid-13th century, only to arrive at age five in a monastery 140 or so years later. So even though there are additional super-unrealistic accretions that have been added to the original legend over the centuries, even the quote-unquote real story of Rosenkreutz is purely imagined. As we noted, there's almost certainly no such historical person. CRC was created for a literary fiction and then adapted to be the avatar for the philosophy extolled by the so-called Rosicrucian manifestos. But we can learn a lot from how his pseudo-biography is presented, so we'll use the story of his life as related by the first of these tracts. Recall, that's the Fama Fraternitatis, originally circulated in 1614. The bulk of this pamphlet details the life and journeys of CRC from his aforementioned tenure in a monastery to his departure to seek wisdom in the Holy Land. This is, recall, the post-Crusades period when what Christians refer to as the Holy Land, that is essentially Israel and the surrounding areas, have been reclaimed by Islamic forces long after the heyday of the Crusader states and the Knights Templar. But it's more confusing even than that. This narrative purports to have taken place 200 plus years before it was actually composed. That is, the story is set in Germany in the late 14th century, but the whole thing was dreamed up, written, and published in the early 17th century. So in a sense, it's historical fiction, like creating a modern superhero but setting her exploits in the 18-teens. 
Okay, so what did CRC learn in his journey to the mysterious East? Oh, a fuck ton, apparently. He headed out to Jerusalem with a buddy called only P.A.L. They're big on initials in Rusicrucian manifestos. Unfortunately, P.A.L. kicked the bucket along the way, but CRC persevered, ending up in Damascus working as a 16-year-old physician. Here we'll quote from the Fama itself. And because of his skill in medicine, he obtained much favor with the Turks and even became acquainted by chance with the wise men who were from Damkar in Arabia and beheld what great wonders they wrought and how nature was revealed to them. The high and noble spirit of Brother CRC became so stirred up by these discoveries that Jerusalem was not so much on his mind anymore, but rather Damasco. Eventually he could not bridle his desires any longer and made a bargain with some Arabians that they would carry him for a certain sum of money to Damkar. According to his report, the wise men received him not as a stranger, but as one whom they had long expected. They called him by his name, and showed him other secrets about himself, and when they knew so much, he could only mightily wonder. Now, in case that was confusing, he was in Damascus, which is today the capital of Syria, and which at the time Europeans apparently called Damasco. But the mystics he met with were from Damkar, which today is called Damar and is in Yemen. So he traveled from Damascus to Damkar, which is a journey of about 2,000 miles that crosses Saudi Arabia the long way. Amusingly, Turton's Invisible History notes that the original printer assumed there was a typo and replaced Damkar with Damasco. So in that version, CRC undertook a long and perilous journey from Damascus to Damascus. He made it to Damkar and was embraced by the wise men there and learned a lot. Like what? Let's ask the Fama. He learned the Arabian tongue better there, so that in the following year he translated the book M into good Latin, which he afterwards brought with him. This is the place where he learned the advanced medicine and mathematics that the world would have great cause to rejoice over, if only it were filled with more love and less envy. Okay, so he took in a lot of advanced science and mathematics. Do they explain what exactly that entailed? They do not, but hold on to that question for a second. CRC next goes to Egypt, where apparently he just wanted to look at local fauna and flora before proceeding to Fez in Morocco, where he learned still more from still other wise men. Once again, we don't get details, but we do get this interesting description of how scientists of this region behave differently from European scientists. It is a great embarrassment to our culture that these wise men, so far remote the one from the other, should not only be of one opinion, hating all contentious writings, but also be so willing and ready, under the seal of secrecy, to impart their secrets to others. Every year the Arabians and Africans do send people to each other, inquiring about the arts of the others, to find if they had found out some better things, or if experience had weakened their previous positions. Yearly something came to light whereby their mathematics, medicine and magic, for in these subjects the wise men of Fez are most skillful, were amended. There is nowadays no want of learned men in Germany, magicians, cabalists, physicians, and philosophers, if only there was more love and kindness among them, or that the most part of them would not keep their secrets close only to themselves. This, more than any other excerpt we've heard, gets to the heart of why the Fama, as well as the other tracts, were published in the first place. But again, let's keep a pin in that and note only that it's not all holding hands in Kumbaya for CRC in the lands of Islam. The tract's author is only too happy to throw shade at the followers of what to him was an obviously false religion. He often confessed that amongst these wise men of Fez their magic was not altogether pure, and also that their Kabbalah was defiled with their religion. But he still knew how to make good use of all of it, and found still better grounds for his faith, 
altogether agreeable with the harmony of the whole world, and wonderfully impressed in all periods of time. Learning all he could from the wise men of Fez, he shipped off after two fruitful years, eager to share what he had learned with his European brethren, who were both wise and followed the correct religion. Unfortunately, when he arrived in Spain and attempted to offer the improvements, enhancements, and corrections that he had learned to the sciences practiced there, he found his audiences uninterested in the new knowledge, as embracing it would require them to admit their previous errors, and maybe make them look stupid. He tried the other nations of Europe. Same result. No thank you. Seems weird that no one would want the wisdom of the ages, doesn't it? Sure does, especially since the Fama makes it clear that CRC could totally do that one weird trick that alchemical doctors don't want you to know about. Eternal youth? No, though he apparently did learn some significant life extension techniques. The tract has him dying at the ripe old age of 106, pretty long in the tooth for the 1400s. But the big trick was that Rosenkreutz was perfectly capable of transmuting base metals into gold. The holy grail, if you'll pardon the expression, of alchemists since time immemorial. Rejected, CRC took his ancient knowledge football and went home to Germany. After a five-year period of reviewing and synthesizing what he had learned, he decided that if the wise of Europe aren't going to get on his new knowledge train, then he'll build his own secret society to disseminate this learning and begin quietly influencing the world for the better. So he created an ersatz Justice League of Esoteric Learning, eight scholars who dedicated themselves to chastity, study, and healing the sick for no monetary gain. They assembled a library of obscure and occulted knowledge, constructed around a mysterious tome referred to only as Book M, which Rosenkreutz had read and translated on his journey. The eight members of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood individually traveled the world doing good, led long lives, but eventually started dying off, and so a succession plan was hatched, such that each would train a replacement in his old age, and the society's membership would thereby stay at the appointed number. CRC, as noted earlier, outlived all of the original society members he had recruited, plus some of their successors, eventually croaking at age 106, presumably in 1484. At this point, our narrators relate the story of how they personally came to hear about this secret society, as they make it clear that they were not part of the original group formed by CRC, but rather contemporary scholars of the early 17th century. They claim they were brought into the fraternity by a latter-day member to whom the group's existence and secrets had been passed on. All that is, except the secret final resting place of Brother CRC, which had been lost to time. So you can imagine the author's surprise when their group decided to do a little remodeling of the Spiritus Sanctus, or House of the Holy Spirit, that CRC and his cronies had built. Basically, the Rosicrucian Hall of Justice, but with less Batman. When they pulled some plaster off the wall, they realized there was a secret door behind which they found the tomb of CRC and all of the many volumes of wisdom that he and the original Rosicrucians had developed, undisturbed in the 120 years since Rosenkreutz's death. Must have taken a while to air out the erudite stink. Au contraire, Unicorn. Apparently CRC's body had not decayed in any way since his death, what with the magic and all. The story wraps up by essentially throwing open the doors of membership in the formerly eight-person society to all of the wise men of Europe. We, his brethren, request again that all the learned in Europe who shall read this our Fama and Confessio, which we have sent forth in five languages, that it would please them with good deliberation to ponder this our offer, and to examine most nearly and sharply their arts, and behold the present time with all diligence, and to declare their mind, either communicato concilio or singulatim by print. Wait, you said they send out the fama, but also the confessio. What's the second one? The confessio is essentially a list of 37 points about how great the Rosicrucian order is, why people should be excited to join it, how it's shortly going to begin revolutionizing all of Europe with its science and wisdom, etc. 
The only thing we really need to note about it for our purposes is that it's the one that gives CRC's birth date as 1378. Then, a year after that, a completely different sort of book emerged. This one supposedly written by Rosenkreutz himself as a first-person fable or allegory. Sort of a similar form to the Divine Comedy, if y'all are lit nerds. Called The Chemical Wedding. They No, that's a chemical romance. This is a chemical wedding, specifically the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. What's the plot? CRC realizes that if he loves alchemy so much, why doesn't he marry it? Not exactly. It's a long, interesting allegorical story taking place over seven days, a period corresponding to the traditional days of the Feast of Passover, during which CRC is invited to a royal wedding and sees many wonders. We're not going over the whole thing here, as it's one big, long symbol fest, the kind that's seemingly designed specifically to keep those of a conspiracist mindset poring over the various figures and arguing over what they represent. But suffice it to say that some weird shit happens. Including a scene on the fourth day wherein the betrothed king and queen, along with several other nobles, watch a play in seven acts, costume change from white to black clothes, and are summarily beheaded by an executioner who is himself then beheaded. Oh, and then servants catch the royal blood in goblets and put those in the coffins with their bodies. Again, there are three more days of allegory after this scene. Indeed. But we mention this book for a couple of reasons. The first is, although it came out after the Fama and Confessio, and is not, like the others, a clear call for membership in the Rosicrucian order, its mysterious, alluring tale may have done more than the other two to spur interest in the Rosicrucians among 17th century enthusiasts. The second reason is that it appears actually to have been written years before it was published, and years before the other tracks were written, when its author was only 17 years old. It sounds like you actually know who wrote that one. Indeed. The author eventually fessed up to having written The Chemical Wedding, though the other two tracks remained anonymous. But in taking a closer look at that author, Johann Valentin André, we can shed more light on the emergence of all three books and perhaps make sense of the whole Rosicrucian phenomenon. Churton fills in the biography. Andre came from a family of noted theologians. His beloved father died when the boy was only 15, which is when his mother moved the family to Tübingen, where she served as an apothecary to the court of Württemberg. He was an academic star. Quote, Johann Valentin was duly enrolled at the university where the lonely, intense, but good-hearted boy distinguished himself as a brilliant student of classical languages, poetry, Renaissance literature, physics, mechanics, and chemistry. André was also unquestionably a literary genius. Again, the man wrote The Chemical Wedding when he was about 17 years old. A period during which young Jesuit was writing emo poetry so bad that should it ever emerge into the light of day, he would spontaneously combust from shame. That's not true. Shit. Yeah, unlike nearly everyone who picked up a pen in his teens, Andre was clearly possessed of true literary gifts, creating a rich and arresting book that fascinates people to this day, four centuries later. But the thing is, he appears never to have intended to publish it. He was by day a respected theologian, lecturer, and scholar. But he also had a youthful interest in the study of esoteric and hermetic knowledge. You'll recall that hermetic texts are works that date back to the early Christian era, are attributed to a legendary figure called Hermes Trismegistus, 
an attempt to synthesize all divine wisdom across all religions into one overall system. We discussed them earlier. Thus his creation of the chemical wedding. Andre's role in authoring the other two tracks is more questionable. Many believe he collaborated with one or more co-authors on the Fama, but he likely had nothing to do with the Confessio. So, who else wrote these books? Tougher to say, but it's likely that the other author or authors came from a group of Andre's friends in and around the university. As both of our authors explain, the world of ideas in 17th century Germany was exciting and sometimes dangerous. The authority of religion was fractured. While the Catholic Church still held sway over much of Europe, the Protestant Reformation that had begun a century before had by then become well ensconced throughout Germany. The divisions among Catholics and Protestants would, a few years after the publication of the Manifestos, lead to the appalling bloodshed of the Thirty Years' War, in the aftermath of which Catholic Europe, and especially the Holy Roman Empire, which held sway over most of what we currently call Germany, would be dramatically diminished in power, and citizens would increasingly be allowed to worship whichever flavor of Christianity they preferred. The years prior to this conflict were a time of intellectual ferment and utopian visions for the future of religion and knowledge. Churton notes that the scientific luminaries of this period, people who would completely revolutionize our understanding of the universe, including Copernicus, Kepler, and Newton, had worldviews that took religious orthodoxy, celestial omens, and other concepts that would strike us as non-scientific just as seriously as they took their calculations. Quote, While the science was disputed, debated, dismissed, and often repressed in Kepler's time, arguments over the Bible and the stars were nonetheless regarded as scientific debates, debates of knowledge. Copernicus reckoned the sun's central position was implied by hermetic philosophy dating back, he thought, to the time of Moses. And, of course, alchemy, the magic besotted precursor of chemistry, was ever-present among those seeking to understand the mysteries of creation. And because all of these factors were in the world and on the minds of the authors of the Rosicrucian Manifestos, their writing captured these currents and, in a sense, froze them in amber. So everyone reading the manifestos throughout future centuries would be presented with an array of esoteric, astrological, Protestant, and alchemical ideas that would permanently become a part of the very concept of Rosicrucianism. Like, if the manifestos had been written in the 1920s, the Rosicrucians might forever be linked to prohibition, flavorous, pole-sitting, polite anti-Semitism, and organized crime. Kind of, yeah. So, over the centuries, some potentially accidental aspects of the manifestos became part of the Rosicrucians' whole aesthetic. But this still leaves us with a question. Why did Andre and the others write these things? The key seems to lie in that part of the CRC pseudobiography we highlighted earlier, where the young Rosenkreutz sees how the most learned scholars in Arabia, that is, the Middle East, and Africa, meet regularly to review their discoveries and correct their errors. Now, this assertion is pure conjecture. It's not as if Andre and the other authors necessarily knew this to be a fact about scholars thousands of miles away when there's no indication that any of the folks who wrote this thing had ever been to those locations. But just as clearly the anonymous authors wanted this sort of cooperation among European Christian scholars, and they found it totally lacking among their contemporaries. And so they hatched an idea that would take as its main character the narrator of Andre's earlier work in The Chemical Wedding, which was not officially published by then, but was indeed circulating among the Tübingen intelligentsia in manuscript form. They would give this character, Christian Rosenkreutz, a backstory that made him into a wandering alchemist and seeker of knowledge. A real thing at the time. Recall that hundreds of years earlier, the Crusades had brought advanced and esoteric knowledge back from the Holy Land to Europe, and so intrepid seekers after wisdom, though not our authors, probably, would continue to journey to those lands in search of knowledge for centuries after the Templars were pushed out of Jerusalem. 
From this, they concocted a story where our pure-of-heart hero, having stumbled upon the greatest wisdom of the ancients, brings it back to Christian Europe, is rejected by preeminent scholars, and therefore creates his own secret society dedicated to further study and to using what he had learned to improve the lives and societies of all Christendom. Okay, so they fabricated up the backstory, but was it just a narrative that was designed to get other like-minded intellectuals to join their quest for cooperation and learning? Like, had they formed an actual Rosicrucian Brotherhood and just ginned up a good background to attract new adherents? Weirdly, it seems like there was no actual Rosicrucian Brotherhood in existence at the time. Not even one that the authors threw together in advance of their call for new members. So, you're saying that the only Rosicrucians when the Fama came out in 1614 were the fictional ones and the Fama itself? Yeah, that appears to be the case. Moreover, Churton suggests that Andre and his co-authors may never have intended to actually publish the Fama, and so were unprepared to deal with the consequences once it came out. As we know, of course, you can't prove a negative, so it's not possible to prove that there wasn't a pre-existing group of Rosicrucians, just like it's not possible to definitively say there was not a Christian Rosenkreuz. But the evidence indicates that the whole thing emerged out of the publication of the manifestos rather than the other way around. There are other factors as well. Jordan points out that the period around the publication of the manifestos was uniquely apocalyptic. Various years supposedly held great prophetic significance. He mentioned 1620, but 1666 was also read by many theologians and students of prophecy to be important portentous years, potentially precursors to the second coming of Christ. Which, if you've read the book of Revelations, is not exactly a super chillaxed time period. Andre and his compatriots in this reading may have deliberately published their ideas in an effort to stave off the apocalypse through a change of heart among all humankind. But even assuming they did intend to publish, it admittedly strains credulity to believe that someone would deliberately set out to create an invisible secret society and correctly assume that declaring that society's existence would actually cause those who were attracted to the story to create that society in the real world. But is that really any more unlikely than the definitely true-life conspiracy kaleidoscope launched by the frauds planted by Plantard, de Cherisy, and Corbu in our previous story? Perhaps the most notable thing you realize when reading the three tracks that launched the mysterious, amorphous thing that is still called Rosicrucianism 400 years later is that while the Fama and Confessio refer extensively to the wisdom that Brother CRC acquired, they don't actually provide that wisdom to readers. Like, not even a taste. Instead, they tell the legend of the founding and then call for interested individuals to seek out the Brotherhood that they might join, study, and learn from said wisdom. Which, since again, at this point, no Rosicrucian order actually existed, is a pretty neat trick. It's like the stone soup of esoteric intellectual traditions. Please explain this analogy? As many of you already know, there's a famous children's story called Stone Soup, in which two hobos come to a village where everyone claims not to have any food to share with their starving visitors. ...on the edge of the well and shouted, We are master cooks! If anyone in this town has a big black pot, we will make the most delicious soup anyone ever tasted. The travelers filled the pot with cold water and built a fire. Soon the flames licked the sides of the pot, and billows of steam rose into the air. Curious people began to gather. What is happening? The townspeople asked. We are making an unusual soup, said one of the travelers. It requires a special magical ingredient. I am certain we will find it in this town. All the eyes in the crowd watched as one of the travelers reached 
stone and picked up an ordinary stone. He tossed it into the pot with a splash. We're making stone soup, he said. It will be nutritious, delicious, incredible, and edible. But it would taste better. He paused and sighed. <sighs> if we only had a carrot. The itinerant chefs announce they're cooking a magical soup, and if anybody contributes ingredients, they'll get a share. The selfish villagers all want a bowl and start heaving in the vegetables and meats that they had been previously hoarding. Eventually, of course, the ingredients the villagers add creates the soup through the magic of cooperation and gullibility. The stone is the catalyst for the action, but doesn't actually do anything. Ah, I get it. The manifestors of the stone. The effect they'll have on readers across Europe is the soup. Exactly. There's no hidden wisdom of Christian Rosenkreutz. But if enough people believe there is and decide they want a piece of that action, then you'll get more intellectual cooperation, less secrecy and jealousy among scholars, and soon those who join the imaginary Rosicrucians will actually create the delicious soup of enhanced knowledge without ever knowing what they were doing was the result of a gentle con. Clever girl. Or as Churton puts it, if Christ's true loving fraternity had indeed become a thing, invisible, unfound, unseen, unloved, and unwanted in the world, why not establish a real invisible fraternity? Such a marvelous paradox is surely at the root of the amazingly brilliant creation of the secret brotherhood of the Rose Cross. Its mystery and fascination would never end, for it takes root in the unconscious realm from which it came. And those authors did a great job of seeding their narrative with hints of real-seeming sources of wisdom. For example... You remember that CRC goes to Damkar slash Damar to learn? Churton thinks this reference is to a genuine intellectual community of Baghdad called the Sabians, whom he suggests were less of a religious and more of a philosophical community, taking as their holy text the Hermetic Library of Hermes Trismegistus. In other words, this may have represented a mystical society that was seeking free inquiry within a theocracy by covering themselves in what appeared to be a religious mantle, but wasn't. The Sabians, along with other mystical groups like the Yazidis and the Sufis, were intellectual catnip to Europeans who came to expect this kind of learning to gradually make its way from west to east. By having CRC learn from these cats, he was immediately granted legitimate-seeming bona fides. Fascinating. So what happened after the publication? As we noted earlier, there was a huge wave of responses to these tracts, both pro and con. And in addition, because the society claimed to be secret, but scattered throughout Europe, suspicion immediately fell on the major galaxy brains of the time. Surely, for example, René Descartes... The guy who coined I Think Before I Am. See the first reality show for more on him. He must have been a member, right? He immediately fell under suspicion upon his 1623 return to Paris, at least partially because he had traveled around Germany as a volunteer soldier for the preceding few years meaning he had been spending time in the place where the Rosicrucian furore had started, which in turn, depending on who was writing on the topic, either meant that he was part of a new dawning of wisdom or that he was part of an evil, destabilizing, revolutionary force. In other words, that he was a Rosicrucian. So what was a brilliant mathematician and philosopher, who was not in fact a part of this non-existent organization, to do? Quoting Churton, He made himself visible about town. How, he reasoned, could anyone suspect he was a brother of the Rose Cross? Had not everyone heard? The infernal brethren were invisible. Furthermore, he reasoned, having sport with the credulous inquiries of friends, it was that very invisibility that must have prevented his finding the fraternity in Germany. Part of the reason that it could be dangerous to be associated with the idea of the Rosicrucians during this period was that they were in many areas seen as revolutionaries, even a sort of proto-communist menace. 
Note the fact that the three books that kicked things off are even now known not as the Rosicrucian books, but as manifestos. That is, quoting Churton, programs of revolutionary reformatory action on a global scale. Not just the authorities and anti-Rosicrucians thought this. Churton relates that one Philip Ziegler, arrested in 1626 in London, declared himself king of the Rosicrucians and carried papers indicating that he saw the manifestos as a call for secret revolutionary action. Still, the Invisible Brotherhood remained invisible, in spite of the fact that everyone and his brother was trying to figure out how to contact them and join. The question was, join how? The very end of the Fama assures potential adherents that, even though they would remain anonymous, the members of the group would hear all petitions for membership. And although at this time we make no mention either of our names or meetings, yet nevertheless everyone's opinion shall assuredly come to our hands, in what language soever it be, nor anybody shall fail who gives but his name to speak with some of us, either by word of mouth, or else if there is some letter in writing. And this we say for a truth, that whosoever shall earnestly and from his heart bear affection unto us, it shall be beneficial to him in goods, body, and soul. But he that is false-hearted, or only greedy of riches, such a person first of all shall not be able in any manner of wise to hurt us, but will bring himself to utter ruin and destruction. And so throughout Europe, ambitious young scholars, desperate for the lives of brotherhood and scholarly contemplation promised by the Rosicrucians, printed and posted their pleas to be contacted by the mysterious group ASAP so they could sign up for the intellectual revolution. On reflection, the call for new members issued by the Rosicrucian manifestos is kind of a perfect system. The tracts themselves claim that the Brotherhood will contact the worthy, right? So if you send out a request and you don't hear back, maybe you're not worthy. Or maybe they just haven't gotten around to contacting you yet. Or maybe you decide that whether they accept you or not, you're going to form your own Rosicrucian society, and then you'll be the one doing the accepting or rejecting. And thus, real-life Rosicrucian societies eventually arose because people believed that they already existed. Churton again. Then the stroke of genius. In responding to the story, you would have to find the fraternity for yourself and in yourself. For did not St. Paul say that his real life was hid with Christ in God? Mackintosh relates a number of stories of the best and brightest of Europe who responded to the call of the illusory brotherhood and sought to join the new order. We picked one of these to exemplify the group, as it really seems to us to underline exactly how exciting and alluring the idea of membership in an intellectual society based on ancient wisdom was for young, educated, rudderless men raised in these tumultuous times. Joachim Morsius was born in 1593 in Hamburg, and though he was a theology student, became interested in the more exotic topic of esoteric knowledge and alchemy while he was still young. He was ambitious. Quoting Mackintosh, he yearned for an international reputation as a scholar, and in search of it, made a long series of journeys to foreign countries. Which is great. Go forth and gain wisdom, young Padawan. But the problem is the expense of these travels, coupled with the cost of self-publishing as alchemical and other musings, quickly drained his inheritance, and he actually ended up in debtor's prison, until he was sprung by the help of the King of Denmark. A detail that we can't help but think could be the plot for a whole novel? Or one of those Oscar-bait Shakespeare-adjacent period films? Hamlet 2. The Redemption of the Rosicrucian Debtor. Theaters and HBO Max, June 2023. But all of these perambulations and erudite scrivenings, though they earned him a good reputation among fellow scholars, didn't result in a permanent, well-funded academic position or in the level of recognition he craved. Again, Macintosh. His mind was too restless and fleeting, and it is characteristic of him that he should have spent so much of his life searching for the true Rosicrucian wisdom. And here we reach the crux of the reason for this little character vignette. For young and hungry minds like Morseus, 
especially those who found themselves constitutionally incapable of buckling down and dedicating a whole career to the detailed and laborious work of developing true expertise, Rosicrucianism was pure catnip. Born today, Morseus and his cohort might have glommed onto the so-called intellectual dark web, or Bitcoin, or modern monetary theory, or Greta Thunberg standing. Like so many others, he wrote his letter to the Invisible Brotherhood, begging admittance, and like those others, he received no reply. But he was undeterred, defending the Rosicrucian secrecy in print, eventually meeting Johann André himself, who, in spite of the fact that later in life he seemed to abjure the whole idea of the Rosicrucians, did not put the young man off the Rosicrucian path. Morseus spent the rest of his life traveling around Europe, seeking enlightenment from a variety of teachers until his death in 1643. Again, quoting Mackintosh. Morseus was seeking along secret paths to attain the higher knowledge of hidden worlds, to unveil the ultimate mysteries, and from the very basis of things to bring forth a new era. He may have failed in the search, but the dream was to continue, being nurtured in other minds. Indeed it did. One of the books we read for this series, the generically titled Secret Societies by John Lawrence Reynolds, didn't turn out to be a great resource, but did have a couple of pithy observations. First, he pointed out that the symbology of the group immediately led to questions about what, if any, associations the Rose and Cross might have had with other esoteric movements. A suspicious few connected the symbols with those used by the early Gnostics, and later others pointed out that both the Rose and Cross appeared in the family coat of arms of Martin Luther. Still others saw the Rosenkreuz as an adaptation of the Red Cross of the banished Templars, suggesting that Rosenkreuz and his followers were resurrecting that movement while introducing elements of the ancient Kabbalah into its teachings. Boy, you weren't lying when you set the Templars a reference everywhere. No doubt. And we also want to quote Reynolds on the eventual impact of the Rosicrucians, which in many senses continued to be the most influential secret society that didn't really exist in any sort of consistent, identifiable way for the next three centuries or so. He asserts that they had two advantages in terms of influence that previous secret societies didn't. The first was technological. Christians, Templars, Gnostics, Druids, and early Kabbalah advocates had spread their word in the ancient oral tradition, supported by limited distribution of hand-copied manuscripts. Rosicrucianism was the first society of its kind to take advantage of Gutenberg's invention and its ability to produce thousands of copies of its tracts cheaply and quickly. Within a few years after the appearance of the chemical wedding, copies were being distributed, translated, and reprinted all across Europe, with an impact far beyond that of similar philosophies distributed prior to Gutenberg. It had been one thing to hear a tale of magic whispered by a passing stranger. It was quite another to read the same tale, unsullied by new interpretations or ornamentations, on the printed page. The second advantage he noted was the group's apparent exclusivity and the amorphous nature of its existence if it can really, at that point, be said to have existed at all. Exclusivity added another boost to the sudden spurt of growth. The ability to read was restricted to the best educated and most privileged class of society. And their embrace of Rosicrucian principles added veracity to a movement rooted in a hoax. The wave of new adherents to the loosely established philosophy grew so fast and wide that the movement began simultaneously absorbing beliefs of other groups and splintering into competing factions, each division claiming to be the true fraternity of the Fama. Hermetists, Gnostics, Pythagoreans, Magi, Platonists, Alchemists, and Paracelsians, minor coteries all, huddled beneath the Rosicrucian umbrella, even as mainstream members began to be absorbed within larger, more tightly constructed groups. Dana, were you expecting guess? I was not. Well, can you get that? Why? You're actually closer to the... You know what? Never mind. 
Dana, who the hell is at the... Oh my god. It looks like we're in for an announcement. Paranoid strain. Technically unnecessary, but totally super interesting digression. Why? Quick hit guy. So nice of you to sub in when it's not even a... Paranoid strain. Quick hit. Episode. Great to be here. How are the wife and kids? They're doing well, thanks. And the little hitties? Growing like weeds. Junior's taller than his dad now. Cherish this time, Jesuit. It goes by so fast. You know it, QH. Anyway, I should get going. And remember, you were going to briefly derail the show to talk about something kind of related to the Rosicrucians. I was indeed. Let me get back to that, but... Really. Good to see you. It's been too long. Paranoid Strain, Quick Hit Guy, misses all of you too. Let's do this again soon. Can't wait. Dana, let's do this more often. Always a pleasure, Quick. Such a good dude. We really don't see him enough. Anyway, yeah, we're going to digress into a weird bit of conspiracist lore that... And he did not know this until he started researching this topic. ...actually involves the phenomenon of Rosicrucianism, as well as one of the most interesting figures of the period, Sir Francis Bacon. So let's take a few minutes to walk through this theory, which is fun and harmless and very probably not true. First things first, who was Francis Bacon? Francis was born in London and studied at Cambridge University before he became a Member of Parliament in 1584. Bacon was a keen scientist and challenged the Aristotelian methodology that debate and argument by learned men was the only way to discover scientific truth. Bacon's political roles continued, and he was appointed Lord Chancellor, the most powerful political position in England at the time, and after this was made Viscount St Albans. His political career finished after he admitted accepting bribes, and he was fined, imprisoned, and banished from the court, as well as from Parliament. He was later pardoned by the King, but retired to his home in Hertfordshire, where he continued his scientific writing until he died of pneumonia. Thanks, random YouTube clip. Yeah, Frankie Porkbelly was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but is one of that rare sort who leverages his high-born status to actually do something great. And, to be fair, to take bribes. Yeah, which wasn't great, but on the other hand, he also was one of the architects of the modern scientific method, so let's cut the man some slack. And about that, help us understand other random YouTube clip why Bacon's philosophy ended up being so important for subsequent centuries. The philosophy of Francis Bacon went against the deductive reasoning that dominated the age and introduced the inductive method of reasoning in which the premises are viewed as supplying some evidence for the truth of the conclusion. Bacon placed supreme emphasis on experimentation and thought the results of said experiments should be carefully recorded so that later generations would have a reliable and repeatable conclusion to base future experimentation on. It's through this innovation that the name Sir Francis Bacon would ring through the corridor of history as genius and become synonymous with the scientific method that we know today. The 20th century historian and philosopher Will Durant said, it was Bacon who rang the bell to call the wits together in Europe had come of age. Precisely. He was a truly seminal figure in the development of modern science and almost an avatar of the ideal science man, totally dedicated to spreading the gospel of the inductive method. In fact, it's long been suggested that the pneumonia that killed him in 1626 was contracted as a result of an impromptu experiment where he was studying the effect of snow stuffed into the cavity on the preservation of chicken meat. I'm a sucker for these stories. Scientists so sciencey that it kills them. 
like Archimedes, who, according to legend, was sketching mathematical or geometric diagrams in the Greek city of Syracuse amid the Roman sack of 212 BC, and whose last words to the Roman soldier who ran him through with a sword was Latin for, please don't disturb my circles. Again, probably didn't happen that way, but still, super badass. Paranoid strain. Digression, digression. Okay, okay, we're back on track. So anyway, Bacon was a famous intellectual in the early 17th century, when the Rosicrucian manifestos appeared. Which means, just as we saw earlier with Descartes, he was suspected of being part of the secret society of Invisibles, announced by the Fama and the Confessio. As Macintosh notes, there was good reason for people to make this connection, as many ideas about universal brotherhood and other Rosicrucian-friendly concepts popped up in B-Man's work well before the tracts were published. And there are still more marked reflections of Rosicrucian thought in Bacon's posthumously published New Atlantis, where specific allegorical references to the first two tracts appear to have been intentionally added to his vision of a utopian society. Researchers have definitely acknowledged that in his later years, Bacon absorbed and then used the ideas and symbolism of the Rosicrucians in his work. But of course, many others have gone much further, alleging first that Bacon and his society of fellow thinkers and writers were in fact the origin of the Rosicrucian manifestos. Which is a wild and unsupported accusation, suggesting Bacon somehow is the same person as Johann André through an Elvis is Alive-esque plot involving Bacon faking his death in a chicken freezing incident, migrating to Germany, and writing under the André name until his death. Which, if you're using the actual André's lifespan as a guide, would have been at the age of 133. So that's pretty fucking nuts. But that's not the famous Bacon conspiracy. The famous one makes him not only an innovator of the scientific method, but also the greatest writer in any language at any time ever. Some researchers believe that a spiritual encounter with Pallas Athena gave Bacon the inspiration for his life's work. Well, in some of those cipher writings that he had written, he, he writes there how this, um, he heard a heavenly voice. The voice he heard inspired him towards secrecy and to imitate the work of God. Baconian scholars believe that Bacon's revelation led him to develop a series of theatrical works that would teach the English people and transform them into a nation that could one day dominate the world and resurrect the Atlantean dream. Believing that he put away popular applause as his heavenly voice had commanded, he is said to have written behind the identity of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare is a synonym for Apollo and Pallas Athena. They're both known as shakers of the spear in classical tradition. And the spear represents a ray of light, a ray of wisdom, and they shake that spear at the dragon of ignorance. Exactly what Ben Jonson says in his preface to the Shakespeare folio, um, to shake a lance at the dragon of ignorance. Pallas Athena was, uh, she shook her spear at the eyes of ignorance, so she was the spear shaker. Now, she's always been known as the spear shaker. That was long before the time of Bacon. He took that name, Spear Shaker, and just turned it around to make it Shakespeare, and it used to be written with a hyphen, and then it became one word, Shakespeare, as the name of the playwright for those Shakespearean plays. But what of the real William Shakespeare, the Stratford man whose name has been revered for nearly 500 years? His writings have been attributed to a number of other authors, including the playwright Christopher Marlowe, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, and even Queen Elizabeth herself. 
But Sir Francis Bacon seems to lead the pack of would-be bards with well over 200 books, essays, and pamphlets on the subject, many of which insist he is the real and true Shakespeare. There is a mystery because when you look at the plays, everything that's in them and, and what lies behind them in terms of experience, uh, knowledge, and something like that's expressed through the plays and the philosophy in the plays and something like that, they do not match up with what we know of the life of the actor. In fact, the life of the actor uh, is quite well known. It's, you know, it's quite a lot of research been done on William Shakespeare Stratford. So a lot is known about his life, and none of it matches up what you can deduce from the author from the plays themselves. In fact, the more we find out about the life of the actor, the, more, the worse it gets. Here you have a guy who, who is barely literate enough to make a mark, much less write his name. There's not a single letter either from him or to him by any of his contemporaries. How can this guy have written the greatest literary works in the history of the world? It just didn't happen. Whoever was the author certainly knew about certain things happening abroad in the royal courts, uh, in France, in Italy, and in Spain. Not only taught the workings of the court, but the intrigues as well, and who would know that? Certainly not a play actor like um, the William Shakespeare. There's no way that man could have known the intrigues that went on inside the court. But Francis Bacon did. He was well familiar with it. He was brought up in the court. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.